VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, July the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's producing this Come On with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590-VOCM, which is 86... 26. So when it was as sticky as it was last night, I kind of woke up and thought, oh, well, maybe flick on the soccer game. I'm bad for that. So I did exactly that. It was just minutes before our captain, Christine Sinclair, was clipped inside the 18-yard box, appealing for the penalty. None came, but they went to the video review, and Canada was awarded a penalty kick. Of course, playing against the 40th-ranked Nigerians. And Sinclair missed. Good save, but missed all the same. It was an opportunity for her to score her 191st goal as a senior side representative in international competition, and she'll have to wait. The girl who would normally, the woman who would normally take the penalty kicks for us, Jessie Fleming, was on the bench, deemed not fit to start, so it ended in a nil-nil draw. That's a poor result. I mean, it's only going to get tougher for Canada as they proceed through the group play, but no score versus the Nigerians is not what the doctor ordered. Keep an eye on the North American Indigenous Games up in Nova Scotia. Team NL doing pretty well. We got 20 medals so far, heading into the final weekend of the competition, so bravo to all involved. See if we can scoop up a little more hardware over the weekend. And a couple of uh, two U18 provincial volleyball teams head into New Brunswick this weekend, compete in the Elite Atlantic Championships. So safe travels. They're taking a bus and the ferry to make their way to Fredericton. Safe travels, and they're in good hands with the coaching staff. Head coach, Jack Daly. Ha <laughs> ha. a boy, Jack. Go get him and safe travels, kid. And Junior A Baseball Championships had uh, happening this weekend on the West Coast. The defending champs, the St. John's Caps, the Mount Pro Blazers are there, and the Cornerbrook Barons all going to duke it out at Jubilee Field in Cornerbrook from the 21st today to the 23rd. Just a busy season in baseball, and good luck and safe travels to all involved in that championship. And speaking of baseball, it was on this date in 1991. Canadian Ferguson Jenkins was amongst the class, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooper Town, New York, joining Jenkins, Gaylord Perry, Rod Carew, Tony Lazari, Bill Veek, great crew. And of course, Jenkins was the only Canadian in the Baseball Hall of Fame until very recently, a couple of years ago, Larry Walker, in his last year of eligibility, made his way into the hall, justifiably so. So there you go. All right. So I've heard from a bunch of people involved in the fire services. And, you know, it's curious that I don't know what the risk level is in every single part of the province. It's moderate in this neck of the woods, apparently. There are five wildfires currently burning. Minister Abbott is speaking out about the water bomber issue last weekend. Only one water bomber and one water bomber crew available working towards solutions. But here we are in the height of the season. So fingers crossed for yet another safe weekend. Weekends generally bring upon uh, bring about more people going out to the campgrounds and the the parks, breaking out their ATVs or what have you. They get down to really specific stuff, talking about ensuring that there's no debris on your muffler, which eventually will get pretty hot with prolonged use of your ATV, and something could actually just fall off the muffler of your ATV and be the spark of a wildfire. Wildly specific issue, but watch out the weekend. All right, it was last week. There was a story in the news regarding a Canadian-born, Australian-trained, and operating as a family doctor in Australia trying to come home. So it was a long battle, 17 months. But here's the curious part. Uh, Two days after the story was published, all of a sudden they found a resolution. 
it really is worth questioning whether or not the colleges of physicians and surgeons around the country really have a firm grasp on what Canadians are dealing with, the reality on the ground. Nobody doubts the fact that we need the college to be adhere to Canadian standards, but let's be honest and be real. If you're trained in Australia, which has a pretty quality healthcare system and good enough for them to be practicing as a family doctor for 10 years, how and why does it take this long? So there was even such foolishness as they rejected one document because of how the date was formatted. So 17 months. It really does beg the question, not only whether or not the colleges, uh, colleges understand what's happening on the ground, but the stories of Canadian-born, trained abroad doctors unable to find residency positions, and then stories like a 17-month wait of bureaucracy and foolishness and unnecessary hurdles. How many doctors have we lost over the last, pick a number, 10 years? Because if that is a real contributing factor with just how dismal some of the situation is for many provinces, if not every province, then we really have to hope that the colleges can figure this out. And again, it's not to suggest that we just open up the doors and uh, take all the risks and whoever wants to be a doctor, regardless of where you're trained or who you are, where you practice, come on in. It's not that at all. But there's got to be a better way and a shorter time frame to adjudicate whether or not someone is a qualified doctor to practice in this province. And this lady now that she's made her way through is going to moved to Hamilton. Her and her family were in Hamilton, and as the problem persisted, she actually moved by herself, left her husband and children behind, went back to Australia to keep her license valid. And again, 48 hours after the story was published nationally, all of a sudden they found the resolution. So you got to think that we can do a lot better. So imagine rejecting documents because of the way the date was formatted. Maybe they do it a little bit differently in Australia versus how we do it in Canada. But that can't be one of the issues that keeps a doctor wanting to come to this country and practice. There's just something patently wrong with that. So if you're a doctor trained in Ireland or anywhere else in the UK or in Australia or the United States or other countries around the world, first world countries, top quality medical schools, very similar healthcare delivery, very similar training experience and accreditation, it should be able to be a little bit more mobile, especially while we're dealing with so many healthcare-related woes. Same thing goes for psychiatric nurses. We're told that there are going to be amendments allowing the college to that regulates the nurses to bring psychiatric nurses into the fold. But again, time, we're in a time crunch here, and consequently time is of the essence. So let's get down to brass tacks and see if we can figure that out. But that 17-month story, that's pretty irritating. All right. So yesterday, even during this program, there were warnings coming from the Harbour Grace Detachment of the RCMP about someone who's traipsing around the community with a gun, a rifle. It's a bit of a strange story. Of course, very scary. Uh, residents in that area were told to stay indoors and lock your door. I mean, that's for many. We went through it here in the city of St. John's and surrounding area some while back, and it was cause for concern. Of course it was. So apparently they found an empty rifle case, located the subject in a house, guns drawn, and they tell the two people to come out of the house, hands up, got on their hands and knees, crawled over to where the police were, and were arrested. Or at least one of them was arrested. But they didn't find the gun. But these stories of the prevalence of guns is really concerning, to say the very least. So we have notorious neighborhoods in this city and other pockets uh, and parts of the province where they've got persistent problems here, whether it be backhoe bandits up the southern shore, armed robbery in Deer Lake, the fourth suspect has been arrested. You know, the difference in how different law enforcement agencies react to these types of stories is interesting. So the conversation or the question would be, 
This is not a direct knock on any individual police officer or any law enforcement agency, but are we at a point where we have to stand back and acknowledge what type of training is afforded to everybody to deal with the complexities that we see on the ground? Not saying that they don't train properly, of course not, because I haven't been through the training, nor am I an officer, but the way the RCMP reacted to mobilize yesterday and then you look at some of the very dangerous and notorious neighborhoods, say, in this city, and how it just seems to be, you know, a revolving door. The cops show up, the same people are dealt with, some are arrested, they're right back to where they were arrested hours later or days or two, a couple of days later, and the problems just continue to manifest themselves. So what the solution is, I'm not entirely sure, but we're doing a really poor job here in the country, I would suggest, if this is basically and mostly fueled by drugs. We're just not doing enough. We can focus in on mental health as we should, and we will continue to do so on this program. But even like with the newly, uh, the newly constructed or being constructed facility for mental health and addictions, the addictions part kind of gets left by the wayside. We know that there's a consensus amongst the general public that it's self-inflicted harm. You started doing these dangerous drugs, they're highly addictive, and consequently your addiction puts you in a spiral. Some of those spirals end in different forms and fashion, but many of them end with them being brought to the court with some sort of drug-fueled related crime. And unfortunately for all of us, uh, many of these crimes now include firearms. So. How we deal with the amendments of the criminal code, more of, a, you know, more of a focus regarding public safety on guns and illegal guns in particular and these bloody build them at home ghost guns or whatever the case may be. So some of those dangerous neighborhoods, I hear you, I see you. And if you want to bring it forward, and it doesn't have to be just Livingstone Street in the city of St. John's. There's lots of areas where this could indeed be a problem that we got to talk about. And curiously, this is, this is stick with crime and punishment here for a second. Paul Bernardo. Of course, serving a life sentence for the kidnappings, tortures, murderers of two teenagers, Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey in the early 90s. Of course, he and his then-wife, Carla Homoka, also killed her younger sister, Tammy. So serving the life sentence, and for the vast majority of it, in maximum security. There was significant public uproar when we were told, all of a sudden, that Mr. Bernardo was being transferred to a medium security prison. Now... In many of these facilities, if you even read through the documentation provided by the federal government and Corrections Canada, there can be significant security at a medium, a medium security prison, but there's so much confusion here. Inside Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino's office, you know, whether or not the staff briefed him in a timely fashion, whether or not the public was given a heads up, whether or not Corrections Canada did all they could and should be doing to notify the victims, the registered victims of Mr. Bernardo's crimes, because he was accused of many other crimes beyond these murders and tortures and killings. So now Corrections Canada has done a review of their own decision-making, and they say they followed all applicable laws and policies, and there's nothing to see here. But there is. You know... They just need to do a better job explaining what's going on. And for Marco Mendocino, Minister Mendocino, you know, there was some thought and talk about saying that the Privacy Act precluded him and his office to getting too, fur too much further deeper into this subject. Now we're told if it's in the best interest of the public to be made aware of these things in timely fashion versus after the fact, that there's wiggle room available for the minister and his office and his staff and awareness afforded to the general public. So... Corrections Canada says they did the right thing. Well, <laughs> of course they said they did the right thing when they decided to transfer Mr. Bernardo. It's not the first time that he has applied to move for maximum security. And I don't think people are necessarily wrong to say maximum security is where he belongs because it sure feels like it. 
right? An evil rapist murderer, mass murderer, you would think maximum security would be where they remain until the end of time. Because he was given a life sentence with no determined uh, time frame for parole. So anyway, the corrections can say they're on the right track when it comes to Bernardo. Okay. All right. So, of course, we will continue to talk about housing issues. And getting housing right will certainly be part of the solution to some of our societal woes. You're going to hear more conversation about rent control. Rent control and whether it's the right play here whether it be in the inclusion of vacancy control as well, because, yes, you can have rent control in place where the landlord owes you a once-a-year heads-up that the rent is going up by a defined percentage. But it's between renters or leasees where some vacancy control measures would also have to be included if this is going to work the way people hope it does work. It does come with uh, an assortment of complications, but the federal government, for the most part some three decades ago, kind of gave up on their role inside housing issues and left it to the, the private sector. Now, the private sector is probably where this belongs. I'm not suggesting that the government has to get involved in every single facet of life and be in control of all of it because I think that's patently wrong and it's an unfortunate interference in the natural scheme of things. But understanding and recognizing that housing issues weren't created overnight. This has been happening for a long time, and consequently, we now find ourselves in a place where not only affordability, but even availability. If the government and other professional organizations, whether it be home builders and otherwise, they say we have to build as many homes in the next 10 years as we have in the last 50 years to catch up. It seems pretty unmanageable, so where are the solutions here? If we think that there's just going to be a private sector developed solution, then we're probably kidding ourselves. So again, I don't think I want the government too deeply involved in all moving parts, but it's certainly their responsibility to ensure that Canadians can, one, afford a home, and two, get access to one. So if that's intervention regarding simply affordable housing, which comes in many different forms or shapes, but the housing issue is, you know, it's been a can that's been kicked around. And one side is looking at the other side, wondering where responsibility lies. But all I know is folks that actually work for a living and can't afford a home, including minimum wage earners, in not a single province in the country can they afford a one-bedroom unit, then we've got a problem. Regardless of who we can blame for it or who we look to for solutions, there has to be some because it's only getting worse. And add to it, as the population of the country grows, now we've cleared 40 million, again, Regardless if it's the birth rate or immigration or whatever the case may be, there's lots of upside to both, obviously. But the housing crisis is only going to get worse. So where the intervention lies and who it's responsible for, we're happy to have that conversation on the show today. All right, so you've heard me talk about education, which I think is an important topic. So the province is now reporting a 94% graduation rate from high school. They've 94% have met, met all the requirements to graduate. Worth noting that this grade 12 class is the first class in years that has had an uninterrupted school year. And I, I know that this, this number is purposefully released, but I really don't know if that speaks to some of the concerns that you hear me talking about and others, many people in the community, about how prepared our graduating students are. Like, if you met all the grade 12 requirements, is that in an effort to shirk what is the obvious, is the concept of learning loss? How could the students in this province avoid it 
that concept where everywhere else it's been widely acknowledged that it is a potential problem and we have to do something about it but anyway you want to take it on let's go and any topic is absolutely up to you and worthy of conversation on this show okay so people woke up this morning checking their bank accounts and did indeed receive the climate action incentive payment which is the carbon tax rebate so there's still some ongoing confusion, and I understand that because this is the first time anyone in this province has received said rebate. We'll get three checks this year, quarterly checks next year, because it just started for the first time, of course, today. So it's all about who filed when, and it's a family number. It's not adjusted based on net family income or anything like that. If you've got your taxes filed, you will indeed get this rebate check. So again, it's $164 for an individual, 82 bucks for spouse or common law partner. Some people asking questions about who gets which amount, but it all comes in one lump sum. So if you divvy it up between partners in the home, whoever filed their taxes first, I think, gets the, uh, the top uh, dollar of 164, but it comes as a lump. Then it's $41 per child under the 19 under 19 that live with you and 82 bucks for the first child in a single parent family okay and we can talk carbon tax but we still don't have a clear understanding where the province is heading on those bloody clean fuel regulations the onus being the burden being put on individuals versus at the refineries is patently unfair and add to the unfairness if we're going to pay three times more than other places in the country that's ridiculous beyond unfair it's completely ridiculous so we've got to figure that out and again i'll throw out the concept of how we deal with this issue and what the impacts will be for travel across the strait with uh, or across the gulf on marine atlantic and there are 33 million liters of fuel they burn annually we're on twitter we're vocm open line follow us there email address is open line at vocm.com when we come back let's have a great show that means you have to join us on the program to talk about whatever's on your mind, including Tony. Let's talk about ambulances right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board on line number one. Tony, you're on the air. Hello, Paddy. How are you today? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, good. Uh, I have a question. I got some concerns. Uh, I avail of our Eastern Health Taxi Services back in April. I... uh, Broke my ankle. I've had the phone. I I, uh, I should clarify myself. I'm uh, a single person living alone. Uh, I broke an ankle, and uh, I phoned nine one one, and uh, I said I didn't need the or the police or the fire department I need ambulance so I ended up going to hospital when I left the hospital three days later I was sent back home in an ambulance because I couldn't walk with a cast on my foot and I recuperated six weeks in a wheelchair after being home to go back to the doctor again had to be brought up by an ambulance because I couldn't I was I couldn't walk and I had a special request from the doctor to transport me out there and now all of a sudden I get a, a bill from Eastern Health for ambulance services yep I asked the lady that I was talking to that she said, well, if you're out on the friggin' 
Oh, excuse me. If you're out on the highway and you're in an accident and you got to get delivered by taxi or uh, ambulance. ambulance, you have to uh, pay for the service. The fee for road ambulance, I think, is $115, right? Yes, you are. You're, you're correct. But shouldn't that be covered under our MCP program? Fair question. I mean, inside the world of healthcare in the country, even part of the regulations in the Canada Health Act, it talks about no out-of-pocket money for public offerings inside of healthcare. But yet, we pay to park, we pay for ambulances and other associated fees. So that's a that's a really good question. There's also an escort fee if you need to be uh, escorted or co- accompanied by someone else. So there's another fifty bucks. Air ambulance, pretty sure, is one hundred thirty-five dollars. It would feel like if I call. I get the service, I get the first responder, and no bill. But that's not the reality. There comes a bill when you or when you get an ambulance or need an ambulance. You're right. But I, I, it, should it be covered? It certainly sounds like it's part of the healthcare system to me. But now factor in, some of the ambulance services at this moment in time are still private businesses. So they will be billing the, the province, and consequently, the province will, as opposed to come out of the, their pocket, which is my money, they will bill the ambulance user. You're 100% right. I understand that, Patty, and that's my concern. I'm a taxpayer, and I would think for something, especially as an ambulance service, that somebody shouldn't have to worry about if they can get to the hospital or back or not, you know. That's, I mean, uh, they pay for everything else. You know, I turn around and... uh, after that uh, example, uh, when I was sent home from the hospital, I still couldn't get back. And uh, I had a doctor's note, and uh, they sent an ambulance in to bring me in for a checkup. And it didn't cost me because it was uh, a requisition, I guess, you know. But I think that, and they told me that if you were out on the highway, you got to pay for an ambulance service. I think that's, there's something wrong there. I'd have to look at the legislation to see if there's exemptions offered for ambulatory services, air or ground. I don't know. I don't have it in front of me, and I can't pretend to uh, know that I've read the uh, document in its entirety. But that's a, that's a fair question, and it's one yes, that we can pose to those who uh, have some sort of authority. Yes, uh, I, I inquired about it, and uh, I asked the lady, and uh, said, no. I said, do you mean if I'm out in Paddy's Pond there and the hitch moves and... That's uh, right. You know. Understood. Uh, but, uh, okay, I'd, uh, I'd appreciate your time, and I wish I could follow up on it. Uh, oh, I will. No I problem. I think we should have to pay for ambulance services. We're paying for it with our taxes, aren't we? Yes, we pay for everything with our taxes. Government doesn't have any of their own money. It's all our money. I appreciate the time, Tony. I will follow up. Maybe we'll see if we can get some comment from the minister, whether it be uh, federally and or provincially, because we're all governed by the national legislation. But it's a good question. Yes, uh, uh, Patty, uh, 
Uh, Very quickly. If your producer had my phone number, I appreciate you get back me on it. And if we don't get back to you directly, we'll speak to you and everyone else right here on the show. But I will follow up, Tony. There's no problem there. I appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for bringing this Thank up. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, fair question. I mean, healthcare, so-called free. Nothing's free. It's just universal healthcare. Okay, so now we found out, given the project was sanctioned in 2012 at $7.2 billion, and here we are over a decade later, Muskrat Falls still not working. Some additional 9,000 pieces have to be installed, including these airflow spoilers over 161 spans of the Labrador Island Link. That's inside the 3,200 electrical towers that make up that transmission corridor. That, a unit may have to be fully dismantled, synchronous condensers at Soldier's Pond, and on and on it goes. Join us on line number three is the man behind the Uncle Gnarly blog. That's Des Sullivan. Good morning, Des. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Nice to talk to you. Happy to have you on the program again, sir. So mm-hmm. we were told no more surprises, no additional monies, but four years. Uh, we have still four years of working on these turnbuckles, $16 million. In the big scheme of 13 and a half, that's not the big issue. It's the fact is it still doesn't work. Yes, well, uh, it is an unfortunate outcome. Uh, It's an incredibly uh, sad experience for the province, for a province that really can't afford uh, this kind of an outcome. But uh, I I would take it back to April. You know, Jennifer Williams declared the Muskrat Falls project officially commissioned. Uh, And uh, interestingly enough, of course, it was probably the first project in Newfoundland history uh, over a million dollars <laughs> that didn't warrant a major political ceremony. So here you had a $13.5 billion project uh, where uh, the uh, uh, president of Hydro was uh, trying to p- politely uh, bring the thing into commissioning without causing too much fanfare or requiring the government uh, to respond in any fashion. I mean, it's uh, uh, it really uh, for for those interested in how government operates and the importance of governance. Uh, of, of a people, it, there's really a major story here. But that's that's not entirely the story. There's one element of that I'd like to refer to, but that is not the, the, the major story that you're referring to this morning. Yes, uh, we we have uh, a project officially commissioned, but did not meet, Patty, did not meet the test required, at least as far as the LIL is concerned, did not meet the test required under the federal loan guarantee. Uh, there is still one test, and uh, there's a requirement that uh, a single line be able to carry 900 megawatts for a certain period of time. Uh, that cannot be done until during the winter when demand is high, And uh, but yet they went ahead despite not having that test completed and despite knowing all the other problems and commissioned it anyway. And that implication is why we, we were also told at that same time that we have not dotted all the I's and crossed the T's in whatever people refer to as the rate mitigation package, and that's the exact reason why. Because unless the federal loan guarantee can be uh, qualified, then that package doesn't technically still exist. So that, That's correct. Th- and that is correct. And that's, that's why this was essentially a political commissioning. It had 
nothing to do uh, with the technical capacity of the plant uh, to be able to satisfy the needs of the, uh, the Newfoundland grid. The biggest problem inside this airflow spoiler, and apparently it is going to settle the problem of the lines galloping under high winds and heavy ice and what have you. Okay, fine. But remember back in December when there was, I think, some three... Uh, fell, three wires fell to the ground. It took 10 days after they cleared 72 kilometers of snow, 10 days to make the repairs. So as Liberty Consulting told us, problems along the uh, particularly long-range mountains, we could see blackouts, rolling brownouts, 30 days, 45 days. So that's that's what's not said in this news story, is access to these most remote parts, where they're going to start with these replacement uh, turnbuckles. But that's the story. Patty, it does my heart good to see that someone else is reading this stuff. You, I, I, uh, full marks to you, and I mean that quite sincerely. Uh, I, I would say, though, that my information is that the outage caused by the, uh, the rime ice issue, which saw um, crossbars, insulators, and other uh, parts of the line fall to the ground, uh, actually went on for a period of an excess of six weeks. Uh, now, there may be some debate on that, but my information is that in two consecutive winters now, uh, we have had uh, outage on the LIL for a period in excess of six weeks. And that alone is very disconcerting. You, you, are, uh, you rightly acknowledge uh, that just having officially commissioned uh, the Muskrat Falls project, uh, the, uh, the president of Hydro is announcing a $14 million upgrade in order to deal uh, with this galloping issue. But it doesn't deal with the fundamental issue of underdesign of the entire LIL. And, and, and this is what worries me, uh, at least in part, and, and why I wrote uh, back in December 22, uh, a, a piece on the blog referred to or, or, or entitled 10 years after Muskrat Falls sanction, we have to think abandonment of the line. Now, some people laughed at that, but, but I'm well aware that Hydro, uh, Nalcor, whatever name you want to use, takes an incremental approach to those things. It, it, it is involved with saving itself embarrassment, not producing a, uh, a full, fully disclosed uh, issue of, uh, of irresponsibility and incompetence to the Newfoundland people. That's not what it's about. It will give us piecemeal improvements uh, with additional millions of expenditures over time. And you have you've cited one. Well, that won't solve the problem of, of rime ice, uh, which is a well-known problem, and it won't solve the problem of uh, of access to repair the line uh, south of uh, south of 160 is the is the typical reference south of 100, 160 kilometers outside Goose Bay uh, where the line goes well off the uh, Trans Labrador Highway uh, you you will take at times weeks in order to clear the snow in order to get in and make repairs on some of those uh, access roads and in the spring. You may not get in there at all uh, during the spring breakup. So either way you slice it, 
You've got a $13.5 billion facility here of questionable value. It will work a lot of the time, but you can't depend on it. You cannot depend on it for firm power, and that's supposed to be the real value of a major hydro project. Well, the Premier says he's still optimistic uh, and reassures us that Miss Williams is doing a good job, and maybe she's done a good job in various facets of operations at NL Hydro, but the fact remains these complications, these problems persist. In addition to that, you know, people can be bullish on this people can be optimistic on it but there's got to be quiet moments inside meeting rooms whether it be on the eighth floor confederation building or at the hydro building that there will be long-term concerns we've never heard one conversation beyond announcement that we're going to decommission Hollywood somewhere in the future no we're not there's nowhere in the near term are we going to even have any discussions surrounding that why because they just work in for another billion we can say three thirteen point five at muskrat but when we are adding an eighth operating uh, generating unit at beta spare to the tune of some $527 million. Then we're going to have to upgrade and maintain Holyrood. Call it a billion. So that 14 and a half is 14, that 13 and half is 14 and a half. And if we're adding the, that capacity, there's got to be some rationale behind it. And that may and probably does include the long-term worries of the reliability of Muskrat. That's absolutely correct. And, and, and when people talk in terms, or even Jennifer Williams talks in terms of $13.5 billion from Muskrat, as you suggested, she knowingly states that uh, not having included the half billion plus uh, for number 12 generator at, at Beta Spare, knowing too uh, that Holyrood will have to be, uh, will have to be upgraded uh, in order to give uh, security of supply to the Avalon. Those things get glossed over uh, that is an insidious kind of government that I absolutely detest I I prefer transparency give me if it's bad news give me the bad news uh, I want to know how to deal with it I don't want a government uh, giving me half lies and we've had that uh, patty since 2010, really, uh, and uh, and I, I I would I look forward to a day when the public uh, vocally says we've had enough. Now, there's one other there's one other issue, and I, and I know that in the case of Muskrat, because there are there are problems of still of software, uh, synchronous condensers, the grounding issues at uh, Dowden's Point uh, down on uh, at, uh, in the Straits. There's the whole issue as you've already raised about having to strip down number two generator and, uh, and possibly the others due to hydrogen embrittlement, uh, so-called, uh, a big story in itself, and we can talk about rime ice and the turnbuckles and so forth. But all that having been recognized, the government still goes and employs the new CEO uh, or the new chairperson of the PUB from from Nelcor, from Hydro. Now, this gentleman uh, who was recently appointed may be the finest person in the world. I don't know the man. Kevin Fagan, I believe his name is. Yes, but this is this is similar to appointing. Uh, the, the former deputy minister of finance, which they've done twice now, uh, as uh, the other general. This is the kind of governance that Newfoundlanders need to say, 
this is not acceptable because uh, there's no objectivity here. There's no independence. How, uh, given all that has transpired at, at Nelcor and Hydro since 2010, 2012, how can we now take one of their executives and make him chair of the of the PUB, who is going to be receiving a major uh, a major submission? Uh, with regard to uh, with with regard to rates related to Muskrat Falls, how do you do that? I, I don't know. It kind of reminds me, not at the same level, but uh, Charles Bound from Nalcor to go head up the MMSB after what we learned in the LeBlanc inquiry. Head scratcher, uh, Des. Wish we had more time, but they're flagging me off to the break. But appreciate you making time for the program this morning. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Patty. Take care, Des. Bye bye. All right. Uh, so we heard the, the news yesterday that World War II veteran Rod Dion had passed at the age of 102. Had the pleasure of meeting and a couple of brief chats with Mr. Dion. The tales he was willing to share, of course, are fascinating. It's a life well lived. Terry would like to talk about the passing of Rod Dion right after this. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5:30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Back. Let's go to line number two. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'm calling you again from the beautiful fishing port of Lassie on the Beaver Peninsula again. Um. Patty, what I wanted to <clears throat> talk to you briefly about is that uh, war veteran <clears throat> that died, uh, and I'm sure it was yesterday or the day before, I'm sure you can correct me. Um, and um, I, a question, first of all, uh, is, do you know if he is the last living uh, World War Two war veteran in Newfoundland? I don't know. People have told me he is, but I can't verify that because I just don't know the answer to that one, to be honest. He, he very well might be. Okay, just wondering. And I was listening as I was driving this morning about a, an interview, a part of an interview that uh, was done with him in November of 2021, I think it was, and it was very, very interesting. And and the thought occurred to me that, well, of course, uh, you know, we all hold our freedom that we've got here in Canada now, and, and uh, well, I guess all the Western world to those veterans of those of that war and other wars in the past but the and we're truly grateful as i am um, but if uh, the thought occurred to me that if that gentleman is the last uh living veteran uh, in newfoundland labrador because i understand he wasn't originally from newfoundland i think i heard on the saying that he originated uh, from nova scotia but that's that's not important here uh, he's living in Newfoundland. I spent a large part of his life in Newfoundland, I guess. Uh, if he is the last, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that man uh, or his family or whatever deserves a special commemoration uh, to him. Like, I mean, we've had days in Newfoundland in the past, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, um, you know, um, where we've done things like fly flags at half mass and, and uh, did special things in recognition of a special event. And if that man is the last, I think something he deserves and his family deserves something similar to that being done by our provincial government this time as well. Fair enough. I, I know that he was certainly held in high regard and spent many 
uh, conversations with the lieutenant governor or what have you. But if he is indeed the last or some commemoration to uh, reflect that, I don't disagree with that at all. I know there's going to be a major renovation at the National War Memorial here in the city this summer and preparations for a Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Maybe Mr. Dion and his uh, memory and his family will be featured when that War Memorial reopens. That would be a great opportunity to do exactly that. So I, I think your uh, suggestion that if he is indeed the last requires some sort of specific commemoration, fair enough. Yes, and, and I'm sure maybe somebody listening uh, could enlighten us on that if he is the last and if there is anything in the works uh, to make a special commemoration for him because I, I can't emphasize enough uh, how the, the, the debt that we owe to people like him and thousands more like him who uh, who went to war, you know, uh, and, and many who died in battle and, and many like him who survived and lived a, to be a prime age uh, after the war. Uh, you know, it's uh, in my mind, it's extremely, extremely important and, 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 and it needs to be, uh, needs to be considered uh, if he is indeed the last. I appreciate the time this morning, Terry, all the way from Lassie. I can, you know, in connection with the Legion and maybe people at the provincial government just to see if they are considering anything like that and when we could expect that. And I, I also owe a note to Jennifer, his daughter, who I'm friends with, uh, about the passing of Rod because, he, you know, even if he's not the last, there were so many returning veterans that were unwilling to talk about the war for obvious reasons. But Mr. Dion was happy to share experiences, which I think p- paints a clear picture or a clearer picture of what was endured and what was reality that was experienced. Because even the veterans in my world, they don't talk about it. And I understand why. Uh, Terry, appreciate the time this morning. We'll see what the Legion has to say. Uh, yes, just before you go, like, I, mean, I, I listened to that interview uh, that was played on VLCN News uh, or VLCN this morning. And, I mean, I don't mind admitting, I mean, it, it brings tears to my eyes. I mean, uh, I, I have a, so much admiration for those veterans who were young, very young men. I mean, 17 and 18-year-old men, some younger that lied with their age, that 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 fearlessly went over there and did what they did. And, I mean... Uh, I, I can't find words to describe the gratitude that we all hold to those people. And, uh, you know, I, I get emotional even listening to him this morning. He was very, very clear and eloquent. Uh, you could tell he was a very intelligent man, the way he described some of the uh, the things that he was involved in in World War II, with the, you know, putting the stripes on the planes so that we didn't shoot down our own planes, but then that at a bad point and that it helped the Germans to identify our planes. His reasoning, his eloquence, and his, the way he articulated uh, uh, his, his experiences was just uh, very, very emotional for me. And I'm sure it is for a lot of other proud Newfoundlanders, as I am, and a proud Canadian. Appreciate the time, Terry. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, get back on track with the brakes. When we come back, talking a little oil and gas. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we know that BP has uh, abandoned their exploration uh, project this summer here. We don't know if and when that will be permanent. We know that ExxonMobil is out there exploring this summer. And then people have spotted a rig off of Bay Bulls this past week. We wondered what was happening and what, where that rig was headed. So we reached out to our oil and gas veteran buddy for, uh, of the program. That's Rob Strong. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? Fine, thanks. Before I get into oil and gas, I just want to comment on the previous caller about that war veteran. And 
I'm one who had no direct no no direct connection with any of the wars, but yet I chose to, and I enjoy going to the war memorial uh, on November 11th to recognize the contribution that everybody has made who fought overseas. So I join everybody else in expressing condolences to the gentleman's family. We're, we're, we're lucky to have people like him to do what they did for us. Anyway. Yeah, my grandfather, Steve Neri, was a World War One veteran. Okay, so you have a close connection. Mm-hmm. Oil and gas, yes. Rig offshore bay bulls, interesting. The rig is the Hercules. It's been here before. And it's going to drill in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the John Dark Basin. And, you know, when we talk about basins, we talk about Flemish Pass and Orphan Basin and John Dark. And I'd like to say that the John Dark Basin is the area where Hibernia, Hebron, Terranova, and White Rose are. So it's 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 a geological and a geological area. So it's 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 in that area. But here we have Exxon, who are the producers of Hibernia and Terranova and and Hebron, and their 28% partner, Qatar Energy, going out to drill a well called Gale N66. As I say, 72% Exxon, 28% Qatar. Uh, the rig is chartered for 135 days, and interesting enough, they they asked for an option for a further 60 days, which would allow, according to my sources, uh, would allow uh, the potential for a second well should Gale N66 come to uh, come to fruition. Uh, my buddy at Upstream Magazine says, "quote Gale is in a good zip code when it comes to oil and gas potential." And he goes on to say it's just four kilometers south of some of the earlier wells. It was a well called South Tempest, drilled way back in the mid-'80s, I guess. And then it's also 27 kilometers from North End. So it's it's in an area that uh, is oil-producing, oil-prone, oil-show. So let's let's keep our fingers crossed. It, it uh it, it could be a new and it could be a new development or it could be a subsea tieback and I've always contended that that you know you, you, the big fields like the Hibernias and and, and Hebrons uh, can justify a standalone development but a smaller development a smaller uh, field of 100 million 200 million barrels can always be tied back to ex- to the existing platforms so yeah that's exciting patty to see to see the Exxon going back into the uh, into the Jean d'Arc Basin, and then lo and behold, the other big story on the Jean d'Arc Basin is Suncor, who, as we all know, are the owners and the operators of the Terranova FPSO, but they have filed the environmental impact statement and plan, should it get approved, to, to start drilling operations in 2024, and again, it's in the, it's in the, in the uh, Jean d'Arc Basin, surrounded by Ben Nevis, North Ben Nevis, Mara, a whole whack of fields. So it's encouraged to, and very encouraging to know that their operators, as a result of seismic interpretation, are saying, let's go back and see what else is out there. Because we can't forget that this industry has given the government of Newfoundland over the last 25 years or so about $25 billion in royalties. And I still contend that it can be done properly. It can be done environmentally safe. It's, it's, and again, I, I've said this to you before, Patty, it's, it's clean oil. If you can have such a thing as clean oil, it's the cleaner, it's the cleaner oil, put it that way. 
yeah for production emissions as a production site for sure you know downstream is a different yep. conversation based on how anything is utilized which is complicated exactly uh, so inside of this approval i think they get some eight to ten years possibly to find to strike oil and gas reserves how, how many holes are they going to punch as part of this uh uh the suncor play well i mean they, they talk about it could drill up to 12 wells but i mean it's obviously dependent upon if they find something or if they don't find something, will they drill a second well to see if they can find something? But after two or three dry wells, I would suspect they wouldn't drill the full 12 wells. Whenever they file these environmental impact statements, they, they, they state the maximum number of wells they'd like to drill on the acreage. And it's a nine-year lease, Patty. You were close. It's, okay. It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. As Des Sullivan said, you're pretty smart in most things. You don't miss much, but you miss that one by a year. So, yeah, yeah it's nine years. It, it's five years, uh, and you're obligated to drill a well in the first five years, and then if you uh, then can extend your lease for another four years, and obviously if you find something, then you get what's known as a significant discovery license. So uh, that's that's you know that's. Uh, you have to have drilling in the Jean d'Arc Basin these days rather than the Flemish Pass way out beyond the 200-mile limit or the, or BP in the Orphan Basin or the West Orphan Basin. Although I, 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 I preface this and say I, this is what I heard on the street, which is just a rumor. Uh, no, nothing official, but I heard BP may be coming back in 2025. So that's, uh, again, just a rumor. This industry thrives on rumors, as you well know. So uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that they come back. So is the, is the Suncor uh, drilling project, is that the, the Tilt Cove project? Is yes. that the yeah. same thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, and with Suncor, I mean, fair enough if they're going out there having a look in that basin, but it sure be nice to get some information from Suncor about the status of the FPSO. And not because it's private sector, we don't, we don't, uh, we can't demand info, but we're in. You know, we've, we've got a substantial I, I, investment here. We have, as you said, we have $206 million cash and royalty relief of $300 million. So that's $500 million of our taxpayers' money. And it's, it, it's sad that no, nobody from Suncor will tell us exactly what's going on, when we can expect oil to flow again. Or if oil is ever going to flow again, you know, they backed it out of their own projections for this calendar year. Yeah. That doesn't mean it won't be next year, but a bit of information would be, I think, helpful uh, because rumors and rumbles is part and parcel of the industry. You know, regulatory certainty, exploration is the key, and rumors will drive the day, which is never going to change, I don't imagine. Well, uh, but as, as, and as the, if, it go, if it goes back and when it goes back, uh, as, as the reservoir depletes, there's no reason why the FPSO couldn't be used to produce another field, a smaller field, you know, a subsea tieback. So we, it, it's important to get it back get, and for confidence building and for ec- economic activity. Remember, every time that, that rig is out, every day that rig is out in Bay Bulls or out in Bull Arm, uh, there's no supply boats, there's no helicopters, there's no mud companies, there's no cement companies, there's no drilling companies, no can, and, 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 and. So when it gets back into production, it makes a significant contribution. So, and my final comment, because the sun is shining and I'm getting out, uh, people should be aware of a massive land sale coming up in November. We have 28 parcels of land out for bid in what we call the, or what the CNLOPB calls the Eastern Newfoundland region, and we have 19 parcels in the Southern Eastern Newfoundland area. So that's what, that's 43 parcels of land out for bidding. 
How many bids we're going to get, who knows. If we get three or four successful ones, I'd be happy. And some of this, of course, and whether it be Suncorp's play and otherwise, in large part due to some of the seismic work that the province has done, or Nalcor, I guess, at that time has done. So that's part of it. A quick question for you before I let you go, Rob. Did you read the piece in the Telegram from uh, uh, Captain Dick Spellacy? Yes, I did. What's yes, making I it? Did. I have a lot of respect for Dick. I worked, my, I was very fortunate to my first five years in the oil and gas business to, I always say, hold on to Dick Spellacy's coattails. Dick was an, is an entrepreneur, well, well, well respected in the industry despite his problems with the Crosby Offshore fiasco. But technically, Dick has been around. He came here in 78, and I went to work with him in 79. Uh, I'm not convinced that that that's the that what Dick is suggesting that the demands by the trades NL are the thing that scared Equinor away from Beta Nord. I, I'm 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 reading articles now about rig rates, for instance. Uh, Transocean, who's been around here for years, Transocean is just reporting that one of their rigs got four hundred and ninety thousand dollars per year per day. Two years ago, that was probably 350. So drilling costs have gone up substantially, and I think that was that. That's a contributing factor of why Equinor wanted to put the brakes on this thing to see if they can get a better feel for it. And we, inflation generally, steel costs, uh, subsea costs. So, and I don't really know what the final energy or what the final trades and opposition was. I don't think. I don't know, but I, I don't think. Anybody be naive enough to think that we could do all five big modules in Newfoundland? Uh, you know, if you look if you look at the White Rose field, for instance, we did 100% of the top sides for White Rose, but they were much smaller modules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the, these days, the, the concept is to make as big big biggest module as you can uh, onshore, because every time you, you have to do a hookup and commissioning. So I don't think anybody would be naive enough to think we could get five modules, but but I think we should get in some topside modules. So I'm not convinced that Dick's argument or Dick's, Dick's suggestion that the position that Trades NL had is, is was the showstopper for for Beta Nord. I think there were several other factors. Yeah, well, I think so too. And you know, not to mention that you know Equinor, an oil giant, isn't necessarily going to be shook to its core by union demands. I don't think. Uh, I mean, but I would imagine one of the more complicating factors is that bloody Article 82 of the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. Hey, listen, maximum that, that could crawl up to seven percent of. of, of of royalties, that's and you know it starts off at one percent and and grows to seven, and and it's never been tested before. It was a lot to see what back in eighty two was it or seventy two? I think I think Leo Barry was minister at the time, so it might have been eighty two, but it's never been tested because it, this will be the first time anybody has ever produced oil, any country has ever produced oil out of out of their economic exclusion zone or the two hundred mile limit. Yeah. So. I think that's a factor as well. And I wonder with the presence of Qatari oil be looking at gas, I mean, because that's one of their core uh, principles is focus on gas, of course, with oil. But th- their presence here just gives me some thought that there's some gas play possibly, you know, beyond landing it, uh, Leo, uh, Leo Power and his group. But there's just something, I get that feeling anyway. I could be way out to lunch. Uh, Rob? No, you're not out to lunch. There is there is good potential out there when you think about, uh, you know, each barrel of oil that comes out of the ground has got associated 
gas and the whole purpose of a production platform, separate the gas from the oil, yeah. put the gas back in the reservoir. So in particular, the white rose field has a massive amount. I think we've probably got 10 trillion cubic feet of gas in total. One standalone gas called belly catters, and the rest is associated. And uh, why can't we produce it? In the, in the meantime, the feds have said no to East Coast gas. They said there's no business case. And I say, let, let the oil companies decide if there's a business case or not. So I don't know where it's going, but I agree with you that that, that Catter's got an interest. Being, you know, they're the largest LNG producer in the world sort of thing, so they know a little bit about gas. So I'm encouraged that they're involved. And it was, you know, some years back it was all about uh, producing and pipelining, but now we have rigs that do nothing but liquefy natural gas. So there's a, the world has changed, not alone what the break-even is regarding the uh, price per MMBTU, but that's changing all the time too, and the thirst for that product is changing as well. Rob, i got to get to the news, but as usual, really appreciate your time. Great. Have a great weekend. You too, man. All the best. Bye. Right, bye-bye. There we go. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we go back, Sandra Mills is there. She's the GM of Shakespeare by the Sea, and then Gordon Parsons from the Royal Canadian Legion Branch Number 9. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Gordon Parsons from the Royal Canadian Legion, branch number nine. Good morning, Gordon. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Beautiful day. Tis that. Yeah, no, I was just listening to your show. I like your show, listen to the show, and uh, they were talking about uh, Comrade Dion there, wanting to know if he would probably be the last war vet uh, for World War Two. But we have Uncle Johnny Pauls in our branch that was in the Battle of the Atlantic. He's going on 100-year-old uh, now, another couple of months. And he's doing very well. We get to talk to him quite often. And uh, other than that, no, uh, Mr. Dion is not the last one. Now, I don't know any more out there like you know from the World War II still living I'm sorry what was Johnny's the, doing pretty well what's, the, what's Uncle Johnny's last name sorry Johnny Pauls Johnny Pauls so do we happen to know if there's any beyond uh, Uncle Johnny not that I know of okay. uh, I, I couldn't say but uh, no and uh, like Uncle Johnny's still driving he's still strong no problems Uncle Johnny he gets uh, <laughs> scattering ache and pain there and there once in a while but other than that he's fine that'll happen when you're 99 that's right. <laughs> Gordon, is Johnny a man who speaks about uh, the war? Because I know Not many too veterans. Much. Uh, I, go over, I go over to him and visit him quite often when I can. Now, during the war times, like uh, you tell me, the only thing that bothered him a lot was the children. Like, you know, wherever he went in port, he always made sure he had a few candies and a couple of chocolate bars there tucked on him there somewhere so he could give them to the kids. But he don't talk about it a lot, no. Like many, and there's reasons why, I suppose. Reliving yeah. it might be very traumatic. Yeah, yeah. And matter of fact, he was, when he came out of the service, I guess he was lucky enough to get out of it. Some people didn't. But he still made his living on the, on the water. Like, you know, the night that uh, Edmund Fitzgerald went down on Lake, Sept uh, Lake uh, Superior, Uncle Johnny was working on a tug up there, a seagoing tug. So he was there on the on the Lake Superior the night that you know, the day that uh, Edmund Fitzgerald sang. Fascinating well, he's stuff. He's got stories. He's loved, uh, nice to listen to. Pam, I'm going to say Pam Parson knows him very well. Like he's a nice person to sit down and talk to, but he don't go into any details about uh, military time now. Pass along a big hello to Uncle Johnny for me, will you, Gordon? I most certainly will. So you guys have a good day. You too, sir. Thanks for the call.
No problem. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, let's get another one in here. Oh, he that hath a beard is more than a youth, and he that hath no beard is less than a man. Join us on line number one. This is the general manager of Shakespeare by the Sea. That's Sandra Mills. Good morning, Sandra. You're on the air. <laughs> good morning. That's my line. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Yeah, you're very good. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know that you're doing much much to do about nothing, so that's why I chose that. That's right. No, that's great. That's a line from Beatrice, who I'm actually playing this summer as well, so I'm doing double duty. But this is, uh, I wanted to let folks know that this is Shakespeare by the Sea Festival is on throughout the month of uh, July and August, and we're doing a bit of a staggered run this year just for ease of uh, company members and volunteers. So this is the closing weekend for Much Ado About Nothing at the Cabot 500 Amphitheater in Bowering Park. So we're hoping to get two shows in today and tomorrow at 6 o'clock p.m. Um, and then after that, we're opening two shows next week starting on Sunday. Um, we have an original production that was written by Bailey Jackson, who's a local playwright. Uh, it's been an hour-long show, and that'll be at the Anglican Cathedral grounds outside, weather permitting. Um, and then Romeo and Juliet opens next Friday, the 28th, at Harborside Park. And both of those shows are going to be um, free admission because they're sponsored by Downtown St. John's. So uh, we hope that everyone can get out to see. If not, much ado this weekend, then be sure to put Romeo and Juliet and Picnic in the Backyard on their, uh, their roster. Many will be familiar with not only much to do about nothing, but it's certainly Romeo and Juliet. Give us a synopsis of Picnic in the Backyard. For sure. It is uh, about, it's a small show. It's only been an hour long. Uh, it's about three sisters gathering uh, in their childhood home backyard for one last evening. Um, so it's it's a really intimate piece. It's basically all about family, sisterhood, um, sibling rivalry, and all of that, all that pertains in there. Uh, but it's, it's basically a love letter to home and to family, and we think people are really going to enjoy it. It sounds terrific. Anything else you'd like to take, tell us about the company or anything else you have, you're working on? Oh, of course. I mean, this is our 30th anniversary season, so we've been a long mainstay in St. John's. So uh, this is the 30th year. We've got the two Shakespeare productions and the um, the original. We are also hosting a uh, reunion uh, dinner on July 31st, and if folks want to attend, it is open to the public. It'll be hosted by Steve O'Connell, and it will take place at the Royal Canadian Legion uh, Branch 56 down in Pleasantville. So uh, folks can get tickets to that or they can learn more about information about our shows on our website shakespearebythesefestival.com How are the crowds? People still interested in Shakespeare? I would imagine they are. Oh, really, really excellent crowds. And that's kind of a reason why we did a, a three-week run for one show and then a three-week run for a different one because we found that last year we were doing six-week run, six runs for both, and it was just really tiring for folks. And we found the audiences, there's so much on the go in St. John's that it's hard to, like, you, you kind of got to lock people into a set time period. you got three weeks to see the show or you're going to miss it. And I think that's really worked out well for us. The weather has obviously been very cooperative. Um, so, um, you know, we've we've only had to cancel once for heat warming, and ho- hopefully we won't have to do it this weekend. But, um, yeah, the crowds have been excellent, really attentive, really responsive, and we hope that more people will get out and see the last weekend and then the next two shows that start. I don't know if the uh, the old English or Elizabethan, I don't even know what the proper word is, but it's so broken and disjointed. It's not hard to listen to, but it might be hard to say. It's, 
yeah, I mean, it can be. We've kind of taken a little bit of liberty with it in Much Ado. We've kind of put in some uh, anachronisms, malapropisms, um, just to make it a little bit more fun for the audience and fun for us, too. But the way it's, it's not hard to act, I got to say, because you do, you spend your time getting used to the language and, and attributing it to different moods, different whichever way you want to say. I mean, one sentence um, can be played 10 different ways depending on how you want to affect the speech and affect the mood to it. Um, I've seen many, many productions of Much Ado About Nothing, and um, there's certain lines in there that I've seen played different ways. So that's the beauty of Shakespeare is that it can be told um any which way you want, depending on how you feel about it. And uh, this is also the 400th anniversary of the, f- of the first folio printing, which there's going to be an event next month, I believe, that's hosted across Canada that we're a part of. Um, that uh, So Much Ado was, I, uh, Romeo and Juliet was part of that first printing as well. So it was, uh, it's, it's a big year for Shakespeare. And we hope that, you know, people aren't scared of the language. The Shakespeare is meant to be seen, not read. <laughs> and as fun as it is to read, it's so much more fun to see and take in live. Yeah, because Much Ado was written sometime late in the 1500s, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, I think it's brilliant stuff, and I really appreciate you making time for us this, uh, this morning, Sandra. Break a leg, and there was a star danced, and under that I was born. <laughs> That's another one of my lines. I know you really it is. know your much ado. We're going to have to see you up there. I appreciate That's making wonderful. time. Break a leg. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye bye. All right, there we go. Let's take a break. When we come back, this year is Wabush Come Home Year. We'll talk about that and then whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number three. You say good morning to the NDP member for Live West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Yes, no, t- uh, today is, uh, well, tomorrow it will be the uh, start of uh, Wabash Come Home Week. So, you know, uh, it's uh, exciting. You know, you've already seen lots of pictures of people posting with the big welcome to the big land sign. People are coming back. It's uh, a lot of energy here today. And my office is actually in Wabash. So, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going on today, a lot of people moving around. And it uh, looks like uh, we're going to have a time this week. Uh, it also, I spoke with one of the organizers one day last week, and apparently registration is pretty strong. Yeah, actually, it, it, it's maxed out. It's capped out for registration for all the like, you know, the pre-ticketed events and stuff like that. Lots of other stuff available though. Uh, there's lots of, uh, you know, just open to the public events too as well. So you know, um, even if you uh, you're not, you couldn't get in on the registration. There's still stuff for uh, other people to do as well as in the community. So you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a busy week here, and it's really exciting to see everyone come back and you know see some old friends and new friends, and it's uh, it's really exciting to see everything uh, you know after uh, you know two years of preparation, you know finally get to actually enjoy the week yeah i mean people will attend these things and think that it just kind of happens overnight and you know you flip a switch and this kind of stuff gets pulled off when that's the furthest thing from the truth no, they actually have a fantastic team of people put this together. Very dedicated, uh, you know, f- uh, residents of Wabush who uh, who are still here, still love their community, and wanted to do something to bring everyone back to Wabush. So you know, it's uh, it's fantastic to see that uh, you know the the you know the, the Wabush pride is still strong in a lot of people, and, they, and a lot of people are getting drawn back who've been gone away for decades and uh, are still going to come back and uh, visit their home, uh, their old hometown, and visit all their old friends. It'd be nice if some of them came back for a visit, reunited with old friends and possibly some family that remain in the area, and maybe just maybe considered being a home. But of course, the complications with living in Wabush and the costs associated with living in Wabush and access to getting in and out of Wabush, it makes that tricky business. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, airfare, you know, return ticket to the St. John's, which is almost $2,000, you know, uh, you know, the cost of... Uh, renting in Wabush is, uh, you know, through the roof and, you know, if you can find a place, uh, you know, and even, uh, even uh, you know, accommodations when it comes to, like, tourist accommodations, stuff is very limited. So, you know, it, it is hard to get here, but those who, uh, who made the journey are very dedicated, and I'll give them that, but uh, given all the challenges of actual travel to Labrador. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a journey, but their, uh, their journey will be rewarded, most definitely, with the, with the time they're going to have. Well, I hope they have a great time. And, you know, with Ear to the Ground in Wabush, we know, I don't know if Boom bust is the right phrase to use but when times are good they're great and when they're not they're not but there's opportunities for growth in the mining sector that we've never experienced before and there's just a thirst for certain minerals that we actually have in labrador and across the country that you know it's not just an opportunity to expand mining projects it's the opportunity to create that secondary industry of processing are you hearing anything because we spoke to the folks at the expo lots of interested parties lots of tires being kicked no real thought or talk about specific investments and where and why and for what mineral what are you hearing well, you know, like uh, right now with Wabush, Wabush is a unique uh, uh, mineral deposit. It has iron, but it also has manganese. Manganese is used in a lot of uh, aluminum processing. Uh, you know, it's used big in the green, uh, green energy sectors. It's used in the uh, development of different uh, electronic components and things like that. Um, they have a stockpile of it. It's, it it's, a, it's a byproduct of mining from Tacora right now. So, you know, they did get their $1.something million from, the, uh, from ACOA to do some research and development on how to process that. If that comes through, that's big news for Labrador West because we have lots of manganese in the ground on top of our iron. So this is actually, a, you know, an opportunity there. So, you know, this is, you know, to turn, you know, from, you know, one mineral to two minerals, that which would be fantastic. Another thing, too, is there's also processing after the pelletization stage of iron ore. So there was some tires kicked uh, and some talk also from uh, Rio Tinto about, you know, doing a secondary processing after the pelletization, um, which you require a lot of uh, a lot of electricity, uh, even more than what we're asking for right now. So this is another opportunity that could possibly come down the pipe. And, you know, I, I really hope that, you know, that, that, that you choose to do it because it would mean more jobs, more opportunity for the region, because we're also not only just making uh, pellet iron ore pellets, we'd actually, actually make actual uh, iron, iron ingot. So, you know, this is... This is an opportunity that also can come to uh, to the region. We had a lot of opportunities in the past. We had a lot of opportunities slipped through our fingers. Uh, one of the ones that was going around back in the 90s was actually jet engine testing in Labrador West. Yeah. So we have opportunity here. Uh, it's just that, you know, we need the infrastructure. We need the electricity, and we need the government to actually listen to us. And when it comes to our housing crisis, our electricity uh, constraints, and even access to the region, you know, this is we've, we had too many opportunities slipped through our fingers. We can't have it happen again. So with the money for Tacora. So I think they say they've got like 300,000 tons of this manganese stockpiled. But is the money simply to research the possibility for a purification plant, or is that just part and parcel with this is just the first step and they are going to indeed build it? Do we know? Uh, I'm not sure uh, of what, what they're doing, but I know it's sort of get to actually have a look at the feasibility of doing it. So I know I want them to do it. Of course I want them to do it. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be a fantastic opportunity for the region. Um, you know, but uh, we'll see where, uh, where, their, uh, where their research and, their, and, and where this money goes in spending on, on finding out what to do and how to do it, and we'll go from there. But obviously I'm advocate for it to do it because it's a part of, you know, the region. You know, we don't want, if not, this, we're just going to throw great minerals into, a, into, the, uh, into the tailings when, you know, we can have an opportunity to actually and the mode on the market. And they're in demand. You know, last year, uh, mineral shipments out of province were somewhere in the neighborhood of 5.1 or 2 or 3, somewhere 5 point something billion dollars. 90% of that came from Labrador. 
Oh, absolutely. We, uh, you know, iron alone is one of the heavy hitters in this province when it comes to actual exports of this province. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's an in-demand product. Uh, you just go back and look at the markets for the last year. You know, it's been at a steady uh, uh, above 100, uh, 100 ton, uh, dollars a ton. That's a, a fantastic price uh, for the market. It's been pretty strong and stable for the last two years. Uh, we have a lot of opportunity here. And, you know, I know we, you talk about, you know, the boom and bust. But if you really go back and look at the statistics of what's been shipped out of Labrador um, since, uh, since the, at least the 90s, uh, we've been strong. I know we've had some low times, low prices, but at the same time, we continue to ship iron ore continuously since 1954. We have not stopped shipping iron since 1954. And it's pure, somewhere in the neighborhood of 90, 99 point something or other pure, which is in demand and top quality. Uh, Jordan, appreciate the time. Enjoy the festivities in Wabush. Come home here. Oh, absolutely. And I welcome all, everyone, come, well, welcome them back. It's going to be fantastic. And it's great to see a lot of old faces again. Good man. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sean Brown, NDP member for Lab West. Let's go to line number one. Art, you're on the air. Hello, Art. Hello. Hello there. Is it open line? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, I phoned you this morning. I talked about coyotes. Coyotes, okay. Huh? What about I'll coyotes? I'll take toys with two coyotes. Just say that part again for me, Art. I was attacked with a coyote twice. You were attacked? Yeah, attacked my dog. And what happened? Is the dog okay? Huh? Is the dog okay? Oh, yeah, the dog's okay, yeah. Did the coyote actually attack you, too? I knocked the first one out, but I had the second one. He grabbed me with him. I jumped board the boat. I threw the dog in the boat. I worked out the boat. I threw the dog in the speedboat. I jumped board and he grabbed me in again. How'd you knock out the coyote? Huh? How'd you knock it out? I don't know. It was sick. With a stick, okay. Yeah. And then, and then the first one I hit, uh, not a stick, but the stick one I hit on the leg and broke his leg. He took off and ran away. How do you know the leg was he, broke? He was trapped out until he was going to come back, but he never come back. Well, he was probably fair to you. Yeah. Did you hungry, boy? They're coming downtown looking for dogs. There's coyotes everywhere. I mean, I've even seen them here in the city uh, more than once. So do you see a lot of coyotes out where you live? I got two. I've seen two here. And if you've seen two, there's got to be way more than two kicking around. Yeah. And fellas uh, go back on the ridge, on the ridge there, cutting wood through the winter. He said, when you go back dead on you wouldn't see a coyote. When he went back next morning, the ground was all tore up looking for something to eat. Yeah, they're around. Actually, the province would pay 25 bucks for every uh, coyote hunted or trapped. Yeah. If you submit the carcass, yeah. Yeah, but anybody now gone, see? Anybody gone to me life since I was born? So you got to take that gun test to get the gun and all that, so a lot of work. Yep. Mm. Can be. Well, Art, I hope, I'm glad the dog is all right. I'm glad you're all right. So you, yeah, the dog is okay, boy. Oh, good I, to hear. What kind of dog do you have? I got a beagle. Okay, beagle, right. Yeah, it comes from St. John's. Was it a rescue dog? I now pull it in St. John's, four rollers. Okay, very well. We had a beagle in our house, too, one time. Yeah. He's uh, two years old now. I got someone. What's his name? I got a name, Jake. Jake? Jake, yeah. Jake the Beagle. Are, did you name him after Jake Doyle? Ah. Uh, Nothing. That's, that doesn't matter. Uh, Art, appreciate the time. Be careful out yeah. there. He's black and white and everything. All hard. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, take care of you. Take care of yourself. All right, Eric. There you go. Knocked one out, got the other one in the leg, possibly broken. Dog's okay. That dog's Jake, black and white beagle. Just about two years old. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. 
Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number two. Good morning, Ashley Russell. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Um, just calling in to talk about um, today we're having a uh, barbecue fundraiser in support of the Second Chamberlain Pathfinders. Um, they're fundraising to go to Europe next summer. Terrific. So, now, there's been some changes in the world of girl guides and names. Are Pathfinders the oldest or is there something beyond Pathfinders? There's another group that's older. So this group is uh, grade 7 to grade 9. Okay. And then there's the rangers that are high school students. Oh, okay. Yeah, because they've changed some of the names, and my sisters were involved in the guiding movement when they were young. So there are sparks and embers and guides and pathfinders and rangers then. That's right, yeah. Oh, okay, great. So we have a group of about, uh, I think, between 20 and 25 girls who are hoping to get to Europe next summer. Before we get to the Europe trip, what kind of stuff do pathfinders get involved with? What are they doing? Um... We do so many different things with the girls. We, a lot of what they, um, what they do is community service, but we also do a lot of fun things, um, exploring different businesses. Like for example, last last year we went, learned how to make chocolate. Um, just we just do so many different things. Like we go camping, hiking, um, trips. Uh, we went to Belle Island last summer as well. So. There's a lot of different things. We it's it's about education, but also about um, a lot of fun with the girls. Do they wear uniforms still? Mm, it's not mandatory. So, okay. at our fundraiser today, I'd say some of the girls will have them, some of them may not. <laughs> and is it still the quest for badges to fill up your sash? Is that still part of guiding? Um, I mean, we just, we certainly work towards earning badges as as part of the program, but it, whether the girls put it on a sash or a camp blanket, you know, it's it's more about their choice now. Okay, cool. Just curious. Okay, let's talk about Europe. What's the plan for the European trip? Where are you going? So we're going to London. Um, there's actually an international Girl Guides uh, Lodge in London, so we'll be staying oh. there. It's called Pax Lodge. And then we'll also be going to, um, taking the channel to Paris. Beautiful. Yeah, so those two cities. Well, two great cities. Have you been to either or? I have, yeah. yeah. I can't wait to take the girls there. Yeah, no question. Uh, yeah, a trip to Europe to refresh or to cleanse the palate is good for the soul. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, tell us about the fundraiser one more time. Where, what people need to know, how much anything costs, or whatever you need to tell sure. us. So it's today from 12 to 2, and we're in the parking lot of Newfoundland Distributors, which is at 6 Malali Street off of Tibby Place, so it's right there in the, the like business district. Um, and we're selling hot dogs and drinks, so you can get a hot dog and a pop for $5 or two hot dogs and a drink for $7. Good luck with it. Hopefully you raise enough money to get the Pathfinders group uh, from Chamberlain's over to London and Paris. How about that? Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Newfoundland Distributors, 12 to 2 today. Thanks. Thanks, Ashley. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. There we go. That'll be a trip of a lifetime. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the CEO out at the Port of Argentia to talk about the $38 million injection from the federal government for expansion out in the Port of Argentia. That's part of their $1 million, $100 million expansion plan. Join us on line number one is indeed the CEO, Scott Penny. Good morning, Scott. You're on the air. 
Hi, good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Patty. You actually uh, took the wrong line. This is uh, not the CEO. This is uh, Mayor Brian King calling from the town of Bishop's Falls. So. Oh, uh, Dave, uh, on my line, it says that you're Scott Penny. So let's continue on and talk about uh, what you're calling about. And I think you want to talk about the passing of Barry Saunders. Absolutely, I do, Patty. And okay. thank you for uh, for taking my call here this morning and allowing me to use your platform to, uh, to pay tribute to uh, not only a longtime colleague, but uh, a longtime friend as well. I had never met Barry Saunders, but the stories I hear, like, for instance, I saw Terry Hart uh, tweet about the passing of Mr. Saunders uh, there a few days ago. Tell us about him. Yeah, Barry, or Sock, as he was more commonly known amongst uh, all of his friends, uh, Barry was, uh, Barry, on, on the 17th of July, Barry lost uh, a short battle with cancer at the age of 77. He was uh, a long-time uh, serving member of our council here in Bishop's Falls, uh, serving a total of 22 years. And uh, I can assure you, he served uh, he served the people of his town with a passion, and uh, certainly with no compromise. Uh, a very influential person, uh, not only within our municipality, but within our province, and it spread across the country. Uh, Barry served... Uh, for 19 years, uh, working uh, side by side with uh, former uh, MP Scott Sims, and also working under uh, the former Premier Roger Grimes for a long time as well. So, Barry's political influence and the amount of service and dedication he's given back to the people of this province and this country uh, is certainly second uh, second to few. I can assure you that. He loves sports too. Oh, did he ever? So much so, he was inducted in 2003, actually, to the uh, Broomball Hall of Fame. So Barry's uh, deservingly received recognition on, uh, on a number of different levels, because I can assure you one thing, uh, if there was one thing uh, outside of his family, which he was uh, very dedicated to, it was uh, was giving back to his community, and uh, he deserves every recognition that the man's ever received. Yeah, I know he was involved with softball as well, and we both, Barry and I, share a, a passion or a love of the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, he was. One of the, thing he, uh, one of the main things he enjoyed was going up to Toronto and uh, watching uh, some Blue Jays games with his boys. Yeah, terrific. Uh, and I, I have the opportunity next week to go catch a game when I visit my sister in Toronto. So great stuff. Uh, I'm sure it's a big loss for the community and everyone that he touched, whether it be as a volunteer or a member of municipal council or in his involvement with sports. I've heard some great stories about Barry Saunders, and I'm glad you made time to tell us about Barry this morning. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate your time here this morning. Stay in touch. Thanks, Mayor. Okay, That's Mayor Brian King out in the community of Bishop's Falls. All right, there goes my long-winded uh, introduction to the CEO of the Port of Argentia, Scott Penny, to talk about the investment by the federal government to the tune of some $38 million as part of the $100 million expansion plan. Let's go to line number three. I think we got you this time. Scott, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. myself when I hear $38 million, but anyway, carry on. It's a nice injection of cash. So what is this going to allow you to do? And, you know... Let's start with that, because just spell out what the expansion project looks like. We've talked about the monopile stockyard and being part of the transition and the hub given the ice-free deep water port that is the Port of Argentia. What's this $38 million going to allow you to do? Well, the $38 million, you know, it will be part of a larger project, which is tagged right now. Estimates got it at just over $100 million. So what that does for the port, it gives us that opportunity, that vision to think about opportunity. It talks about, you know, it gives us that uh, innovation, uh, economic growth, um, you know, global transition, et cetera. It's, it's going to be just under 10 hect- hectares 
of land mass, which is quite significant. And it will take our berthage space from 420 meters up to a total now of 460. Uh, sorry, and it'll add an additional 460 meters to a total of 880. And it will put us in some uh, significant in terms of deep water, which is uh, going to be needed into the future. So it really is a game changer for the port. You've got big visions, and a lot of things have been accomplished at the Port of Argentia, and hopefully the province comes on board. No provincial representatives at this particular announcement. How's the conversation sounding with the province? To be honest with you, I mean, the conversation with the province uh, has been very fruitful. Uh, You know, the province are all in in terms of renewable energy. They're all in terms of support and trade. And so uh, all I can say right now is that, you know, we're working very close with the province. I don't look anything into the fact that they're not there. Uh, I think that the province were making a significant announcement in Lewisport that morning. Schedules are very quick, you know, in this in their world in terms of politicians and ministers traveling. And, uh, you know, we only had a few days notice. So, it, you know, for us, I don't look into that. Um, I think, you know, our position right now and our proposal that we have before the province is quite uh, appealing to them in terms of meeting their objectives. And uh, so, you know, all I always say is, is we'll stay tuned and see what uh, the next uh, little while holds. Who are you doing business with? So we talk about investment from the feds and the possibility for the province to get involved. Who is the port doing business with inside this transition world? Well, right now we're doing a lot of work, obviously, with Pattern Energy as part of our Argentia Renewables project. Uh, so we see that as a major opportunity for us. We're doing it with Mammoth. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, we've got major uh, tenants in terms of integrated logistics, Argentia freezers and terminals. Uh, we're also going to be, you know, obviously doing some work in the oil and gas sector. I also see, Patty, in the future, a big opportunity for the province because it will move to offshore wind. There's no doubt about that. Uh, so when we move to offshore wind again, I think that you know, we'll be in a very good position to lead the province in that as well because simply, you know, we're dealing with, I can't say the name, but we're dealing with one of the largest world wind developers in the United States for their uh, growth. And so now as the province moves to say, let's do offshore wind, then it only makes sense that they're going to say, well, geez, we've got a, a port in Newfoundland already that we're using. Uh, we see an opportunity to maximize on some of the synergies. We've made an investment. So the future is very, very bright for us, no question. Yeah, and I mean, Pattern got the go-ahead to move into the second phase. Yeah. One of the leg-ups they have is they don't need Crown land for the first right. phase of their wind proposal. So that is exciting. What makes the Port of Argentia a likely spot for more and more of this type of business to take place? Is it simply the deep water ice-free, or is it a proximity issue? What is it? Well, it's, 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 it's the deep water. It's the close proximity to Europe. Uh, you know, last Friday we had a big event with Boscalis. We, we completed the transit route. And, you know, as part of that project and their project director was in town and he absolutely raved about the Port of Argentia and what it had to offer in terms of uh, land mass, uh, accessibility to large laydown, you know, 10,000 acres. Um, then you look at things like, you know, he made comment around, you know, before we signed on the dotted line with Argentia, we did six months of stock around the eastern seaboard. And he was very clear that there's nowhere else on that eastern seaboard that can do what Port of Argentia can do. So for us, in the you know in the energy transition, when it comes to turbines, I can tell you that they are extremely large, they're extremely long, and heavy. And the fact that we are going to see the first arrive in North America uh, on land 
from Germany in about three weeks' time is quite exciting. So that's what the Port of Argentia brings. And so and there's a strong labor force, you know, in a very, you know, we're sort of like the epicenter for the labor force when you look at it. You look at St. John's, you look at Southern Shore, uh, the Hollywood area, down through Conception Bay North, out to Long Harbor and those areas. So we're, we're quite excited for, for what's, to, what's to come for sure. When is construction a plan to begin and hopefully to be completed? We hope to start in 25, uh, spring of 25. We've got to go, we're getting close now to submitting our formal and uh, project description to um, the assessment agency of Canada to review our project. And so we'll see that in 25 and then hopefully have it cleared up and built by 2027. The, you know, one of the things that we've got to make sure is that we've got to educate um, IAC to make sure that they understand that the, you know, the Port of Argentia is a brownfield site. It's an industrialized site. The community, uh, you know, embraces it, embraces it as that. And so we need to make sure that the decision makers around environmental uh, approvals, you know, understand that. And because we don't want to get in a situation that rather than the brownfield site, we're going through a full-fledged environmental. Uh, approval process that could take up to three years. Um, that does nobody any benefit. Uh, you know, I do believe in the environment. We're fully supportive of you know some of the policies that are in place, but we need to make sure that the shoe fits. And so, if we are a truly heavy industrial industrialized site, which is brownfield, then we need to uh, you know we certainly need to take that into consideration when we're making those decisions uh, as a government. And so being part of this transition, of course, exciting times ahead potentially for you and your group at the Port of Argentia. This just pops in my mind. Also, is there plans to introduce required screening equipment for cargo? Because the Port of Argentia is also a cargo hub. I believe yeah. the story read that without that type of screening equipment, some cargoes have to be rerouted back to Halifax for the final screening before coming back to the province, which has an additional cost that gets normally passed on to me. So what's the plan for that particular screening equipment? What kind of cost are we talking about? Right. I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so what, what's happened is uh, back after 9-11, the, the, the Feds uh, and, the, and the United States and Europe put in this policy first port of arrival uh, for almost 17 years. There was never an issue with coming into our agenda. Then all of a sudden it, it popped up. Somebody must have realized that uh, we didn't have a scanner. So then they start rerouting all the vessels into Nova Scotia uh, and, and then their port and all containers would have to come off. And I'm talking about the vessel coming from Europe, Imskip, because uh, the Port of Argentia is the only port stop for Imskip in the province, so everything coming that's come from Europe. So then it, it, it's offloaded, scanned, put back on the vessel, and then makes its way back to Newfoundland. And so it's not very efficient. Uh, we've had uh, multiple meetings with CBSA on, on the uh, decision. Uh, I can tell you that the Port of Argentia is on a list that is being evaluated uh, for investment. I did have time with uh, Minister Algabra on Wednesday morning to raise that concern that we're trying to increase trade and move uh, products and goods and services uh, and in the supply chain, particularly as it relates to Newfoundland and Labrador, mm -hmm. and that this actually, this decision that we're not able to up in uh, Newfoundland first and got to go to Nova Scotia, actually is a juggernaut, and it's an additional cost in terms of the you know um, the supply chain that flies in the face of the announcement. So he got it, he knows it, he said he's very aware of it, and that the local 
uh, you know, Newfoundland Caucus and, uh, in Ottawa are certainly pushing to get some investment here for that and another province are engaged as well. I appreciate that. I'm glad I brought it. It just popped into my head. Uh, appreciate this, Scott. Good luck uh, to you and your team at the port. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Scott Penny is the CEO at the Port of Argentia. Okay, let's take a break. Since 2015, the RBC PGA Scramble has brought grassroots golf tournaments from coast to almost coast. Now there's going to be a qualifier coming up in this province. We're going to speak with Jeremy Rivando. He's the director of golf at the Wilds right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the director of golf at the Wilds. That's Jeremy Rivando. Good morning, Jeremy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Great, sir. Thanks for making time for us. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Um, yeah, just excited to share the fact that we are hosting the RBC PJ Scramble. It's an event that goes back eight years now, and it's uh, become the largest uh, golf term in the country. And it's the first time that Newfoundland is part of, uh, part of the qualifiers. So we're hosting a local qualifier here on August 6th. And uh, we're going to have hopefully 16 teams of four. Uh, they're going to be trying to qualify locally and uh, moving on to regionals. Um, that's going to be in uh, at Royal Oaks in New Brunswick in Moncton in uh, in September. And then the winning teams from there go to Cabot. And that's the uh, the biggest part of this uh, event is and why it's drawn so many golfers. There's over 10,000 players participating this year across the Canada. And uh, the winning teams, the top 20 teams uh, from across the country will all go to Cabot, uh, Cabot Links and Cape Breton for a national final where everything's paid for, all their flights, all their expenses, uh, food and drinks at Cabot. So it's really a trip of a lifetime for those that are lucky enough to qualify. And like I said, it's the first time we've been able to host a new plan qualifier. So just excited to uh, be a part of that and to give local golfers the opportunity. How many qualifying rounds from the 170 teams to finally get down to the top 20? So if you win here, where to next? Yeah, so the winners here will join, I believe, around 30 teams in uh, in Moncton okay. uh, at Royal Oaks. And uh, and that's just that's going to be all the Atlantic Canada teams. So there's a number of uh, – there's two qualifiers in PEI. There's the one here. There's about six in Nova Scotia and uh, about four or five in New Brunswick. So – all, between all those sites, those, the winning teams from each of those local sites will then go to uh, Royal Oaks in early September to then try to, to, to win that to go to Cabot. What's the format inside this scramble? You know, the classic Texas scramble is either best ball every time or everyone has to contribute three, or how does, what are the rules for this scramble? Yeah, so this one is a four-player team, uh, men and women. There are uh, You do have to have a Golf Canada handicap. And then you play a straight scramble, uh, no step-aside rules, until you go to the local. So the four-player team here will all simply play best ball all the way through. They'll all hit their shots, select the best shot, and move on all the way. Uh, when they win here... The, the host professional, so I'll be fortunate enough to go with the winning team from here, will become a five-player team at that point. So uh, each host professional then goes with the winning team from their local qualifier, and now it becomes a step-aside scramble. So they now institute uh, three drives from each player, uh, have to count, and a step-aside simply means whoever hits the shot that's selected doesn't hit the next shot. Right. That doesn't apply to putting. So you always have five putts. Uh, once you're on the green, but you do have you're only hitting after the tee shot, 
So you have, I guess you have five tee shots and five putts. In between, there is a step aside. So whoever hits that uh, selected shot after the first and second shot doesn't hit, hit again. And then, again, the five players. So if I was with the host team and we were lucky enough to win at the regional qualifier in Moncton, uh, the five of us would then go to Cabot. Uh, it's great. Scramble's a great format. You think it'll be quicker than it is, but generally speaking, the scramble can be a little bit slow. Are you a scratch player, Jeremy? I, uh, I'm i not quite a scratch. You know, um, unfortunately, as a pro, I don't get to play as often as I'd like. I'm probably uh, a three or four handicap uh, when I am playing, but um, it's always a priority and always seems to get pushed aside for, for more work. 100%. And the Wilds, I love the Wilds personally, but if you're struggling off the tee, it could be a long day. It's a beautiful course built on the sand. The greens are usually spectacular. How's the course looking right now with all this heat? Yeah, of course, it's coming along quite a bit in the last few weeks. It was a slow start to the season, but uh, it's the greens are rolling as good as they have been all year. And um, we're actually hosting a scramble tournament right now. Speaking of pace of play and all that, you know, you often find a lot of beginners in scrambles, so yeah. it does end up taking a bit longer. But now the, the wild is certainly a challenging course, and we hear that all the time, especially when it's windy. Um, you know, there's not a lot of forgiveness if your if your tee shots start going a little sideways. Uh, a lot of lost balls out here, but. Um, the, uh, the course is definitely in the best shape it's been all year, and it, it did take a while to get started with the weather, and we're, uh, we're enjoying the heat finally. Golf has had terrific participation, but, you know, for some people, it's hard to carve out that minimum four and a half hours to play 18 holes. What's some of the creative ways that golf as an industry is looking at making it more accessible, whether it be cost or in, in making young folks interested in the game? And, of course, it's that pace of playing the amount of time it takes. I mean, I love it personally, but not everyone has the time. No, we've definitely seen a change in the last 20 years. You've seen a big change. It used to, you know, a lot of the, a lot of guys that golfed uh, years ago used to get away with uh, sneaking away for, you know, six to eight hours, you know, getting there early, practicing, and uh, and taking a day of it. So pace of play is always a talking point. Uh, a few initiatives that we've seen a lot of is, is tee it forward, and uh, and we find a lot of players are playing from longer tees than they should. You know, a bit of a a bit of pride in, in playing from the back tees and that uh, not so much here but even our course it's you know it's it's very long for the ladies it's uh, 5,000 yards long and most courses uh, in golf have been around 5,000 yards for ladies but the newest studies are saying it should be 4,000 yards uh, same thing with seniors you know we, we have we, we're looking at getting a setting up shorter tees for the ladies and then having more of a senior tee our our, our white tee is around 6,000 yards but again the same studies that have been done by the USGA are showing that uh, older players should be playing maybe 5,300 to 5,600 and a part of that that adds to the pleasure of the game everyone likes to you know everyone's keeping their score and they want to shoot better scores well they should be playing from a proper tee based on their distance and uh, and so that's a big one that that affects pace of play certainly as well because if you're playing a, a tee further you're, you're adding a number of strokes and it's taking longer so there's a lot of uh, a lot of factors there but uh, it is uh, a priority to try and improve pace of play so people learn away from from home as long i would suggest 90 percent of players playing the tips don't belong at the tips Absolutely. I just no, don't think so. Correct. Uh, very quick uh, question about Canadian golf. Of course, this year with Nick Taylor winning the Canadian Open, the first Canadian to win since Pat Fletcher in 1954. What do you think that means for the game in the country? 
I think it's a huge factor. I think the players now, uh, we call it, you know, we'll call it the Mike Weir effect for winning the Masters in 2003. All the guys now that have won, we've had five uh, winners on, on tour. The only one is, is Adam Hadwin, and they Hadwin and Taylor almost won the team event in, uh, in New Orleans. Um, so it's quite exciting. But all the guys we're seeing now really were – you know, given a lot of confidence by Mike Weir's win. And, and you're going to see that now. Nick Taylor winning the Open, it was incredible. You know, everyone was tuning in. And it just has such an impact on the young ones that they believe they can do it. They see a Canadian do it. And, you know, being Canadians, we're always, you know, we see it. We've got the Women's World Cup, and they're, you know, not underappreciated and not given a, a great chance and, you know, prove them wrong. And, and that's everywhere. We're so humble in this country. But to have the confidence and that killer instinct to believe you can do it, when you see someone win, it, it affects all the younger the younger generation. So it takes time to really see see the effects of that uh, of what this will do for the country. But it's just so positive. Yeah, I mean, we've got a handful of top quality men pros out there. You know, between Connors, who's been so close many times, even though he's finished got, got across the finish line a couple times, but he's been around the mix. Taylor and Hadwin and Pendrith and others, and on the women's side, we've got a multiple major champion Brooke Henderson. So the momentum is there. It's very similar like it is in Canadian tennis so let's hope that they can continue to have that type of success uh, good luck and congratulations on bringing the qualifiers to the wilds thanks for your time this morning Jeremy thank you so much take good care bye bye Jeremy Rivando is the director of golf at the wilds let's take a break don't go away join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life inspiration shows and new music tune into soundcheck your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM welcome back to the program well there's five communities that make up Nanatsivo that's Rigolette, Postville, Makovic Hopedale and Nain, and they're trying to figure out a way to bring more tourists to their part of the country. Join us on line number two is the Director of Tourism at the Nazi-Ville Government. That's Jill Larkham. Good morning, Jill. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I know you've already had uh, local uh, consultations or sessions in McCovic and Nain. I think you were in Rigolette on Tuesday night. Have you been in, uh, to the other two communities yet? We haven't. So we have staff going into Pulseville next week and Hopedale uh, the middle of August. So what are you hearing so far from the locals? Because I know they're part of driving the new strategy to bring more tourism to the Nazi vote. So what are you hearing? Uh, well, people are excited. Um, they want to be able to offer experiences to tourists coming as well as people who are uh, visiting Nunatsiavut uh, for business. And um, we're working with each community to um, on a bunch of different projects, but to help them with their product development so that they can offer more experiences to people visiting. So do you have the infrastructure or are we just getting to the idea stage and then if you build it, they will come? Um, yeah, there's infrastructure in place, like all of our communities have uh, museums and boardwalks and uh, community centers that they can offer um, or that where they can offer experiences. Like right now, one of the, our big projects are working with our communities to develop guidebooks for them. So uh, meeting with them and hearing what their stories are, what the stories that they want to tell visitors so that we can put it in a, in a booklet for them and then offering training, storytelling training so that they can take that booklet. And, and share those stories with people coming. How important is it to tailor make the strategy for the individual communities? Because it's not necessarily one size fits all. I mean, there'll be different opportunities, different uh, hospitality in different communities. So how important is it to target the five to make them unique and stand alone? 
Uh, very important. So our tourism strategy is community-based and this grassroots. So um, we made sure that what we heard from our communities, we put um, took that and put them into our projects. And we have five pillars, so we want to make sure that we preserve our culture and our history um, and share the stories that our communities want to share uh, while focusing on the visitor economy. I mean, one thing for sure, and for people who have never actually seen up close and personal the Aurora Borealis or the Northern Lights, I mean, that might be enough to get people to come to the Nazi vote. Yes, it's be- they're beautiful. They're incredible. We've seen many pictures. Yes, we see many pictures this winter of uh, people in our community getting a- being able to experience that. Okay, so if you were making a pitch for some of the current uh, opportunities that are already in place in the Nazi vote for people, whether it be on the island or anywhere where people are listening this morning, what should they come and experience? What should they come and do? Well, I think when people um, think of Nunatsiavut and the Torngat Mountains, um, they think of the place. Like they, you know, they think of you know beautiful scenery, um, off the beaten path, and so they come to see those things. But once they get into our communities and meet our people, they, um, it's really our people and our stories that they that leave the lasting impression on them. So I think, you know, come to see our beautiful piece of the province um, and you will hear incredible stories from our our people and that is what you'll take away. So it's not only the beauty and, of course, the potential for ecotourism. How important is cultural tourism? Very important. So everything that we do is um, is based on our culture and our, our history and, and sharing our stories and our way of life. Then there's the issue, I mean, when we talk about tourism, even here on the island, I mean, International Airport, right here close by where I live, but we've got a cost issue. How are you going to approach the costs of getting into the Nazi vote? Because for many people, they'd consider quite remote. So what's the conversation looking like, whether it be partners at Provincial Airline or PAL or the province? Because you've got to get this right as well. Yes. So we work closely with the uh, government of Newfoundland and Labrador marketing uh, tourism staff, as well as the Newfoundland and Labrador Indigenous Tourism Association. Uh, So they really reach the markets that we need to um, tap into because there are people who want to visit and like the the cost of the flights that don't matter. Uh, So we work closely with them so that we're able to market into those those areas to get those people up. So if people want to be heard, uh, whether it be in your community, or other parts of the province or the country, how do they connect with you? Uh, so I could be reached um, by my email, and we also have Tourism Development Officer staff. Uh, okay. We have a uh, Facebook page, Tourism Nunatsiavut, so if you send us an email on that um, or a message on that, you'll get an um, automatic reply, um, and one of our staff will get back to you. But um, we do have a general email address as well, uh, tourism at nunatsiavut.com. So any questions that people have, they can um, send into that, and someone will get back to you, either myself or one of our tourism development officers. How many tourists do you think you get uh, per year in Nunatsiavut at this point? Um, the numbers fluctuate, um, but we know um, from working with our partners, like in, in Nain, um, at the hotel, that they, you know, they've been seeing people visit um, all winter, and they've had a number of people already um, visiting on the boat and uh, by plane. So, um, our, one of our next steps is to work with the marketing research folks um, with the provincial government to to try and get a better handle on numbers. Good luck with this, uh, Jill. You're always welcome on the show to give us. Some update. Oh, thanks so much. My pleasure. Take good care of yourself.
You too. Okay, bye-bye. It's Jill Larkin, Director of Tourism at Nanatsivut Government. Let's take a break. Ashley wants to talk about a Newfoundland power issue and then the 100th anniversary of our friends at VOWR. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Ashley, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Uh, kind of disgusted and irritated. Um, I live in Harbor Grace in an apartment building, and um, I'm not going to say any names. Um, but my rent is being paid by social services, okay? Like, that means my heat, my light, everything, right? So anyways, Tuesday morning, the entire building got cut off. We have no power, no lights, no nothing, and the landlord's not doing anything. And I don't even know what to do. How many units in this building? Just curious. Uh, there's four. Okay, and so the power gets cut off because of what? Uh, we don't even know. We don't even know. Uh, apparently, what I'm guessing, the landlord hasn't been taking care of the bills. And we have nothing. No water, no power, no absolutely nothing. Have you tried to Nothing. call Newfoundland Power and ask why? They won't tell me any information because it's under his name. Okay. And so are, are you able to get in touch with him or he's not answering calls or returning messages? He's not doing nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, there, I'm, I live on my own. Um, and there's an older gentleman about 66 years old next to me. And then there's a younger gentleman and there's a small family out in back. Like, this is retarded. I've called Landlord's Tennessee Act, everything, and I don't even know what to do. And so how long has the power been out, sorry? Since Tuesday. No water, no nothing. They had it hooked up to a generator and that ran out last night. Because it's going by gas. A strange set of circumstances to not be able to even find out why, but you're probably right. Whoever's responsible for paying the bills mustn't be doing that because that's one of the key reasons when uh, Newfoundland Power will take this drastic action. Yeah, there's nothing being done, absolutely nothing. And I don't know what to do. I mean, you know, I live on my own. I have uh, just getting over cancer. I have mental health issues, and this is not helping me whatsoever. I don't imagine it is. Dave, should we put Ashley on hold and get the newsroom to get some information about some specific names and stuff so they can see what they can find out? I'm going to do that for you, Ashley. How about that? Okay. okay. All right. Thank you, Patty. I'll put you on hold, and we'll see if we can get the newsroom to uh, get some uh, specific info to do some follow-up. Okay, perfect. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck. All right, so Ashley is on hold. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Bob Davis. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's a beautiful day for sure. I can't wait to get out in it. <laughs> Today we're celebrating the beginning of our 100th year of broadcasting on VOWR. Yeah, so July 20, 1924. Correct. Correct. So yesterday was the 99th, and today we enter into the 100th year of broadcasting. Isn't that great? I think it's awesome. Uh, people have a wide appreciation for VOWR, including me. I know we have a, a pretty formalized relationship between this station and your group, whether it be with engineers and that kind of stuff. And I have friends that are working uh, with you, volunteers who are working on air. So I think it's brilliant. So what do you got planned for this 100th year? Oh, there's lots of stuff going on. There's tons and tons and tons of stuff. We're uh, we're uh, we're getting out in the public. We're meeting more people. We're uh, we're doing live music events. We do a thing at the Elks Club on the last Wednesday of each month. It's all free. A bunch of my musician friends show up. We play a bunch of tunes. It's like a kitchen party. Everybody's welcome. We've got concerts happening. 
We work at record sales. We had tons and tons and tons of stuff going on. It's a fabulous, culminating with the July 20th of 2024. <laughs> and there's all sorts of different variety of music on your station. But, of course, when it's – I can't remember the name of the fellow who started it, but it's always always been a part of the outreach of the Wesley United Church. How important is that continuing the Christian programming to this day? It started with Reverend Joyce, Joyce. who was the Methodist minister at that, at that time. And he wanted to find a way where uh, people who couldn't come to church could listen to the broadcast. So he got this technology, radio technology, and it actually went out through telephone wires. And you could pick up your phone and listen to the church broadcast on, on Sunday mornings. We still do that to this day. We're probably one of the uh, longest continuous running radio programs in the world. Uh, we're trying to establish that with Guinness. I think there's somebody that's three or four months started before us, but we've got that happening. We still have, uh, uh, you know, a secular component to our um, to our playlist, but uh, we play all kinds of different music. It's primarily an easy listening format, but we have a lot of loyal listeners, and we really appreciate the relationship that we have with, with VOCM. A couple of years ago, we had a transmitter. Uh, went down with lightning strike up on Mount Sire Row. We are off the air for six weeks. And you folks really pitched in and helped us out and get the word out. And uh, we really appreciate that. And all listeners on VOCM, it's great. And it's volunteer operation, which I, I find amazing to be in operation for all these years, driven solely by volunteers. Tell us about the volunteer commitment. How many people are actually working on the station uh, free of charge? We've got about 55 volunteers right now. We've... Uh, we have, of course, on-air announcers, and, and people have regular programming during the week. And then we have a lot of behind-the-scenes people. We've got a, a, a board. We've got people that uh, take care of our public service announcements. We've got uh, a management team. We've got uh, people that uh, digitize some, some of our music, like we'll... We'll take a, a CD, for instance, of a local performer and take some key songs from it, digitize it in our system so our announcers can pull it up uh, pretty fast. Uh, we still spin vinyl. We've got extensive vinyl that, uh, that we deal with. Uh, we've got, of course, the behind-the-scenes nuts and bolts people that got to keep uh, everything going, uh, engineers and whatnot. And, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of people that help out, and, uh, and it's great. It's all volunteer, and it's, it's a good landing place for uh, retired uh, radio announcers, too, you know. So, I mean, there's always a place for you, you know, if you get that itch when you finally hang them up, you know. <laughs> or someone hangs them up for me. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, it's good to have you on the show. A big congratulations to into your 100th year of broadcasting at VOWR. Stay in touch, and when it comes closer to the big day, let's do this again. Yeah, we'll keep you in the loop as to what's going on. Listen, thanks, Patty, for taking my call. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Same to you, Bob. All the best. See you, bye. All right, bye-bye. There we go. 100th anniversary coming up uh, July 20th of 24. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning to Woody French. He's the president of the Royal Canadian Le Legion, branch number 50. Good morning, Woody. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thank you. How about yourself? Oh, good, good. Just plodding along. Uh, first of all, uh, Patty, I'd like to take the opportunity to send condolences to the family of um, of comrade uh, Rod Dion, who passed uh, at 102 
Uh, I've had the occasion to meet him on a on a number of um, things that were involved with at the Legion. And always a gentleman, and uh, certainly um, thankful for his service to his country and uh, certainly to his community as well. It's um, we've lost a, a good one, and um, as we say in the Legion, we will we will remember him for sure. The contribution was massive, and I know there were some uh, celebrations at Branch 56 not long ago or this time last year or the year before about some of the remaining veterans of World War II. We were told by a fellow from uh, Branch Number 9 that there's still another one, Uncle Johnny Pauls, I th- believe is his name. But, you know, we're losing them. We're losing them fast, and um, that's the sad part about it. And the thing about them uh, that I've found in... in, in um, the veterans that I've um, met over the years is that, uh, like Rod, they were all they were all concerned about uh, service certainly, but they all loved a bit of fun and uh, you know to see um, Rod driving around in an antique auto, uh, you know you could see by the smile on his face that it was it was a big thrill for him and being out and and meeting different people and that so. We're losing, um, you know, we are losing a, um, a segment of our of our population um, from uh, uh, the uh, World War Two, and um, that, that's un- unfortunate. So the the least we can do is celebrate their accomplishments while they were with us, for sure. You know, there was mention that, you know, if uh, if Uncle Johnny Pauls is indeed the last remaining uh, surviving veteran of World War Two, when, the, unfortunately, at some point, Mr. Pauls will pass. What do you yeah. think should be done to commemorate that? Well, I think that uh, in a lot of uh, situations, um, um, the thing that, that that we can do is to continue uh, remembering them uh, and honoring their memory uh, through uh, July the 1st uh, ceremonies, uh, through November the 11th ceremonies, uh, activities in the schools, uh, keeping the... Um, Students, the people that are going to succeed us coming up, uh, uh, made aware of the commitment that these people have made, uh, and people continue to make today that are serving in our military um, to make our lives um, um, better uh, than they are. And uh, if if we continue to do that, I think those those proud um, servicemen and women uh, are certainly going to look down and say, well, at least they're keeping the. Um, you know they're keeping the uh, image alive and um and uh, that we you know continue to honor everybody who has served and continue to serve uh, in our military um we've got to remember them we've got to remember what they do and certainly uh, um i think a phrase coined by the police uh, when when uh, we're running away from a situation uh, these people are running to it and um, that deserves to be honored for sure. Woody, I know the Senate taps peppered around the province, but the work that's going to be done on the National War Memorial, including uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, what do we know uh, the status of repatriation, whether it be a member of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment? What do we know about what's going on? Well, right now, I only know what, uh, what uh, has been reported in the media and that it is um, an unknown soldier. Um, Certainly in uh, Newfoundland, uh, we hope that it's somebody that um, at least was in an area that the Royal Newfoundland Regiment were in at the time of this um, soldier's death. And, um, it, you know, uh, we always certainly like to um, to have uh, the remains of one of our own at this, um, at the National Memorial, but certainly to honor 
um, any veteran uh, would certainly be a, a figure um, um, for all of us that have served um, as to, um, you know, what these people have done. And, and I think that um, I hope that they're able to uh, come out and say, yes, that it was a a member of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, uh, but right now I think they're being very, very cautious because of the because of the circumstances. And certainly, uh, we uh, the honour of having our own, uh, which I think is only the second one in Canada, and at our memorial certainly pays tribute to uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians that served. Uh, their country in in both the great wars and and the other uh, wars that we've had um, over our lifetime, and um, I think that that's it is quite an honor. And um, like I said, if they can associate it uh, with um, somebody that we've lost, and that even makes it even that much more important, I think. Understood. I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say, Woody? Yeah, just quickly, Patty. I just want to let uh, people know that um, uh, our branch uh, on Legion Road is going to be closed um, um, uh, for the next uh, uh, week or so. Uh, we're doing some uh, minor renov- renovations and that. So, uh, if some of our members are uh, are wondering um, uh, what's going on, it's only a temporary closure. Uh, we still have our phone number at eight three four two three three one. Uh, if anybody wants to book an occasion, and uh, certainly remind uh, members uh, of the public, in, especially in CBS, that we are always looking for new members for the Royal Canadian Legion. And uh, if you're interested in joining and helping out, um, phone us at eight three four two three three one. Area codes, or you got to use the seven zero nine now, uh, and we'd be more than happy to hear from them. And um, Patty, thanks very much for the opportunity. Um, to um, celebrate uh, with uh, past comrade uh, Dion, and to um, and to be able to, to uh, recognize these people as uh, you so aptly said. So thanks for that opportunity. Certainly, as a um, as a veteran myself. My appreciate my my pleasure, Woody. Stay in touch. Thanks, everybody. Take okay. care. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Woody French, President of Branch 50, the Royal Canadian Legion. Before we get to the newscast here, we throw, out, throw around words like legend and icon a lot. I want to say happy birthday to an absolute legend, a 100% icon, certainly in this industry, my friend and the guy who I couldn't believe I had the opportunity to work with, Vince Gallant. It's Vince's birthday today. I mean, that guy, he's just remarkable, right? And I, I, <laughs> no kidding. When I first got hired here, I come in, and one of the first guys that I meet and shake hands with and welcome aboard, Vince Gallant. I mean, absolute legend. Happy birthday, Vince. Hope you're having a good one, buddy. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Go back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Bev. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? Doing okay, Bev. How you doing? I'm good. Um, I've been hearing on the news lately about Agentia and and Americans coming back, right? The Americans coming back? Yeah. What do you mean, the military? No, Americans. Well, yes. Basically, yes, I'm talking about the military. The last time the Americans came to Agentia 
Do Agentia remember all the mess and chemicals they left behind? And here comes more Americans. What did what are they going to leave behind? Is what I'm saying. Okay, but I I'm not aware of any U.S. military presence being coming back to Argentia. That's news to me. No, 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 no. It's not the. I'm not saying the American military, but I'm but I'm saying the Americans were in Argentia before. Yes, they were right. Yep. Yeah, and the, all the buried chemicals and that they left for us to clean up. Right? Right. Yeah. So what are these Americans going to leave behind? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Yeah, but this is what I'm saying. Like, you know, the Americans were there before, and they pretty well, you know, destroyed the place with all the chemicals and still finding, you know, stuff. And I just thought that people should just be reminded. That's all. Okay, so we're just talking about uh, everyday American citizens visiting the province. Is that no? I'm talking about the business that's going to open up in Agentia. The for the oh, the Pattern Energy or something. Yeah. Oh, yes. okay. Yeah, just what wondering what they're going to leave behind when they're done. Yeah, uh, their business would be vastly different than, of course, a military installation when they're dealing with a wind project. Yeah. So what? Uh, I guess it remains to be I seen understand. what the scar yeah. is of those projects. I don't know. Yes, yeah, I I, I understand they're not okay. going to leave chemicals behind, but they more than likely will likely be leaving more junk behind for us to clean up. That's all I'm saying. Well, hopefully they don't leave any mess for me or you or anybody else. But I appreciate the time, Bev. Thanks for the call. Okay. Okay. You, take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Robin. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Okay. How about you? Not too bad. Um, I'm going to start by saying thank you for um, continuing to host this show and allowing the types of conversations to happen that we don't normally get to hear. And so you provide a very safe space for people to um, talk to you about their biggest fears and concerns and um, everything, uh, things they're ashamed of as well. And that's so important, especially considering uh, the state of local media, where it's going, and media in general, uh, you know, um, this is real. It's real and it's true, and we need more of that in this world. And I would actually, if I had some free time, would love to get a debate club on the go <laughs> and find other ways where we can actually have conversations outside of, you know, a few tweets um, and, you know, really delve into topics in a, in a broader sense. Um, because sometimes we all do it. We make assumptions based on... Uh, you know, short facts, and uh, sometimes some things need a longer conversation. So thank you for doing it. No problem. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I just want to talk about, um, I just want to talk about my neighborhood. Um, you know, Mark and I uh, seem to be the main voices that are speaking out, and I wish it wasn't that way. I did an interview with um, Beth Penny on NTV yesterday, and I tried really hard to get someone else to speak their story, but we couldn't make it happen in time. But 
I, I don't want to be the one telling stories all the time. And when I do speak out and when Mark speaks out, we're speaking on behalf of like a number of people who don't have that safety, who don't have the ability to be able to comfortably tell their story and not feel repercussions from it or, you know, be attacked and shamed because that is what happens when you do speak out. And when, when you're critical of something and it's, when I speak out about things that happen in my neighborhood, there's so many things going through my head, and it's not always uh, clear everything that's behind that. And so I just want to say today that, you know, it's, it's tough when yesterday, you know, we had the Carbonair incident um, that happened, and I had, was in the process of telling someone about the situation we had last weekend where we there were many reports of seeing a person with a gun uh, walking through our neighborhood beginning on Friday afternoon. There were police all over our neighborhood. I've never seen so many police uh, here, and they were up and down the streets and going around. I mean, it felt like they were on the hunt for someone. But everyone knew where the criminals were, like the people who were causing the trouble. I mean, everyone in the neighborhood knew that. And so it, it, it didn't make sense that, um, you know, all, all, everything went down on Sunday morning. Of course, the neighborhood all knew about it because they watched it happen. And then for days, we see nothing come of it. And so rumors are going around the neighborhood about, you know, people being found dead. Uh, people who are known to have a, 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 an addiction. And because they're known to have an addiction, you know, they're kind of taken away and assumed it's an overdose. And chances are, you know, that person might not have someone who is looking out for them and demanding that things be looked further into. Um, there was an incident a few weeks ago where a man was shot in his kneecaps um, in someone's backyard, backyard, dragged out onto the street and left there for the police to find. And so these things are happening, and we're not seeing it in the media. And then what happened yesterday when someone saw, not someone with a gun, but with a gun case, and store shut down, and, you know, an alert went out. And so we're, we get a very different response in this neighborhood and it's and it goes beyond the crime because what the police are dealing with now are situations where you know there's a mental health crisis because someone hasn't had access to medication to a doctor you cannot go to the waterford emergency anymore you have to go to st Clair's. they turn away people who who are threatening to take their own lives that is not a concern anymore. There is no outreach programs available in my community. When I first moved here, I used to be able to help people. I can no longer help them. I can't send them to a food bank. I can't give them the phone number to the community food helpline. I can't tell them to call government. I can't tell them to call any of the local community groups because everyone is at max capacity. And my understanding of how policy works, and because that is my previous life, working with government to make policy change, both provincially and federally, I know that nothing is being done. For example, uh, the Department of Justice 
um, there was a report released in December just passed from the Information and Privacy Commissioner um, about how we had um, legislation around our justice service system and how we approach people and provide services to ensure that they don't, um, you know, commit a crime again. There was laws changed in 2011, but this report that came out in December says nothing has no policy has been changed since 2011, since those recommendations came out, nothing has been done. And so our bail, um, our bail people are underfunded and understaffed. Um, our, um, the guards down there are underfunded and understaffed. The police are now dealing with mental health crises. And because they're underfunded, well, I, I won't say they're underfunded, but they're understaffed, um, and and they're not getting the the plethora of skills that is required to deal with the complex needs that when they show up at some of these situations. And so I get calls from women who are you know had ten cops uh, jump on her, and and she's covered in bruises. And now she and she was thrown in the lockup overnight. And now she's facing a criminal charge because she was having a mental health crisis. And so I'm not blaming this on the cops. I'm not blaming this on anyone but our elected leaders. And so Mark and I, uh, we are tired (laughs) of having to be the ones to speak out. We're tired of begging for change. So we're, we're asking for people who, beyond this neighborhood, because we know that these issues are creeping out. I know of a, a hotel, uh, a former hotel, that's now being used um, as where a private landlord is getting thousands of dollars, thousands and thousands of dollars each month to house people who are being um, uh, taken out of uh, HMP but need a secure place to stay and they have nowhere to go. So they're staying at this place a bunch of them all in one unit, and there's no supervision there, not any supervision. And we're paying like 300 bucks a night per person. So there's no money going to, into any prevention. There are no community groups that do any prevention because they're all just putting every single bit of effort they have into putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. It's pretty much where we are. It's Band-Aid solutions are more common than not. Uh, Simply because of the time on the clock, Robin, I'll have to leave it there and get one last break, but I appreciate you making time. Can I just say, if if this matters to you, go to Facebook, Citizens for a Safer St. John's, and let's talk about it. Sounds good. Thank Thank you, Robin. All right, right, bye. Take care, bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning and week. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thanks for taking my call. No problem. Okay, uh, it's uh, coming up for a busy week for us. Uh, we've we've been active all summer, but uh, I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to uh, highlight the fact that uh, our second bingo of the summer is uh, coming up next Wednesday, July 26, at the Jack Byrne Regional. Uh, gates will open at six. Bingo starts at seven, and we've got over twenty-five hundred dollars in prizes we're giving away. And uh, we'd like to encourage people to come on out if the weather holds like this. It'll be be a great night out. Um, there will be a, a food truck in attendance, so uh, chance to grab a snack and uh, and play some play some bingo. 
and you needed to go better than last time around. We did very well the last time out. Uh, uh, I must say, people came out, uh, and I and I think a lot of it has to do with the promotion and uh, over your program and that. And we uh, we had a great turnout that night. And if we can duplicate that again on the 26th and then on the 30th, 30th of August, I believe it is, uh, it will prove to be uh, a worthwhile venture for us. So the monthly seems to be much better than the weekly, and we're very pleased with what we saw in the in the first. Uh, first week in June. You know, I work with a couple of different uh, not-for-profits and charities and whatnot. Money's tight out there. You know, there's still a pocket of society in this in this city in particular that got lots of money, but it's becoming harder and harder to bring it in for the not-for-profits and the charities themselves. You know, the getting innovative, trying new things, going big, trying to figure out how to navigate this particular economy. How's it going for you guys? Are, are you feeling the same way that I'm feeling with the groups that I work with? I, I think you're absolutely right, Pat. It there's no question money is tight. I mean, you look at it in uh, in every area. People have to watch their watch their dollars. I mean, uh, with with food prices increasing, gasoline prices increasing, you know, people have got to think about that before they think about, uh, you know, even things like our bingo, our games of chance and that sort of thing. So, But we're hoping that this one will be a success. It, it is a challenge. A, a lot of our work, of course, uh, supports uh, mental health uh, issues. Uh, we, we help families on a day-to-day basis to support loved ones who are dealing with uh, an eating disorder, which is a very serious mental illness, and um, and that work has got to continue. So we have to keep, as you say, find uh, keep finding creative ways to uh, to bring in a dollar here and there, and um, it, it doesn't stop. Um, hence, not only do we have the bingo on, we've got our second 50-50 sweep of the year, which is something brand new for us this year. Uh, that'll uh, next draw is August the 15th. Last time around, we gave away over a thousand dollars. So, at least with some of the fundraisers we've come up with now, we're giving people a chance to uh, get some of their money back, hopefully. But but at the same time, always remember that you're supporting a very very important cause that many families in this province depend on as they go through that journey of recovery from an eating disorder. Uh, we're so close to 12 o'clock. I probably shouldn't ask it, but I will anyway. Any quick thoughts on the towards recovery final report? Um, I've read it once. Um, I I like the overall tone of the report and where it's going, but I understand where some of the critics are coming from. And it's, it's probably a problem with government that you need to start setting specific goals and objectives in each area. And we did not we did not see that in that report, but we did see a general direction, and there's talk of two more a- action plans coming out, and I think in those action plans, the government will have to be very specific about what they want to achieve and not do it in generalities. Yeah, because, I mean, we need measures, you know, we need the yep. metrics, how, how we deem whether or not one policy or strategy is successful, and if it is successful, tell us how and why, so yeah, we can build on it. absolutely, Patty. I mean, I've worked in a number of industries as you know, over the years in this province. And every time, my performance has been measured by either the number of sales I've achieved, the amount of the costs I've been able to cut, but there's always been measurable targets set for me. And those targets need to be set, and they need to be reported on. 100%. Paul, appreciate the time. Good luck with the bingo. Thanks, Patty. Take Talk care. to you again. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Paul Toomey, Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. Well, I've seen going through, and I'm sure many of you have already seen it. Tony Bennett. Dead at 96.
right? What an illustrious career Tony Bennett had across various genres of music, dealing with and doing duets with some of the biggest stars, but the epitome of cool and smooth. Tony Bennett, gone at uh, 96. All right, good show today. Uh, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.